What is method writing? Oh, you're starting off with a hard question. <laughs> well, I, I'm an actor, and method acting is a, f a big school of acting that Marlon Brando and people like that studied under, Marilyn Monroe and so forth. And uh, I studied method acting, and it stresses um, an authentic uh, response to what your work is. You're not acting with gestures. You're, you're being true. You're being natural. And uh, I was teaching writing in which I thought I wanted writers not to worry about the technique or the style uh, to begin with, but to get in touch with their, their center, their, their true voice. So I called it method writing, like method acting, method writing. And that was the basic idea. Uh, method writing is a much more complicated methodology of learning to write from your deep truth. And there are a lot of other techniques I teach that are about cinematic images. So in a sense, you're making a movie in the reader's head. So there's other things you have to know how to do. But the core of it, just like with acting, is to be centered and to be true. So method writing is references method acting. How easy is that for someone? Does, does it, do we think that we're being true and in actuality we're actually putting on airs and the audience can see that and they can see it in our writing? Well, if it was easy to do that, there would be no, uh, everybody would be acting. It's not easy to do that. That's why people take acting classes. Uh, I always ask people, what do you learn? What's the first thing you learn to do in an acting class? And the answer is how not to act, how not to look like you're acting. Because uh, if you've ever been to a play, there's always some, some guy that's overacting, and you sense it right away. And as soon as you see the, the person acting, you're pulled back from the reality of the play. Now, of course, the play's not real. You know it's a play. But while you're watching it, you want to have the feeling that it's real. Matter of fact, they instead of saying you believe it, the theater expression is you suspend your disbelief. Because you know it's not Hamlet. You know, you, you know these are actors. But what you, what you want to create is the feeling of verisimilitude, truth, so that the people in the audience for that hour and a half, two hours, can suspend their disbelief and fall into it. Well, if you have an actor overacting, uh, you know right away that they're an actor and you can't get into it. Um, that's why people study acting, to learn how not to act, to learn how to be natural, because it's very easy to be natural in your home when you're sitting there smoking a cigar and drinking a beer. But let's say you be natural on a stage with 500 people out there and, you know, lights hitting you from above. Or in a movie where there's a, you know, a camera looking right at your eye and there's the guy with the sound boom and, you know, 20 people around you. Let's see you relax and be real in that situation. And that takes training. Now, when you get to writing... People don't realize when they're not writing authentically because they, they learn to sound like writers. They learn to be poetic. They learn to be eloquent. And they develop a lot of bad habits in the attempt to look like they're writers, 
quote unquote. So it's very hard to get people to write in an authentic way. It's hard to get people to act in an authentic way, but harder to get them to write in an authentic way because they really don't believe that they are not writing in a natural voice. They, they, they have all this fancy junk that they write, but they think it's, oh, it's, I'm a writer. Look at me, Ma. But very hard to do that. To get to your natural, what I call the deep voice, uh, that takes focus and it takes practice and training, just like an athlete. You know, an athlete's got to be able to perform with a lot of pressure and act like there's no, no pressure. You know, you can't choke. So it's the same with writing. You, you're doing something that's unnatural. You know, you're write, if I were writing a shopping list, I wouldn't be uptight. But all of a sudden, I'm writing my great American novel or my great poem. And, you know, I'm, I'm suddenly going to be, oh, I'm a poet, blah, blah, blah. I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. And you start to push. So it's very hard to let go of that and just be real and be authentic. And it takes training. Is it hard to write a good story? <laughs> Is it hard to write a good story? Um, no, it's not hard to write a good story. It's hard to write a great story. And the only way you're going to write a great story is to be willing to write a shitty story. When you try to write a good story, you're in big trouble. Just like with acting. When you try to be acting, you're in trouble. So, again, you've got to be calm. You've got to be simple. And if you, if you write truly, sometimes you might write a bad story. Sometimes you might write a crappy story. But if you're always trying to write a good story, you'll never write a great story. But if you're willing to fail and write a bad story or a crappy story, once in a while you get lucky and then you get a great story. So for me, it's like going to the races. I'd rather pick a winner that's a long shot and makes a lot of money than win a lot of little races that pay only $2. So yeah, it's easy to write a good story. It's hard to write a great story. You mentioned willingness to fail. With some of your students or others that you've seen, is there something in them that they're too rigid and they can't let go of the idea of being perfect and doing everything great or excellent at first pass? Yeah, I mean, I could just quote what you just said. But you see, you've got to understand that as I said, it's very easy to be sitting home in your living room having a beer and a cigar and be natural. But let's say you be natural in front of an audience of 500 people or in front of a, the lens of a, of a camera, like in a movie, and that lens is, you know, it's right up against your face. Man, you freak out. You get nervous. You push. You, you overdo it. So when you're writing, it's, it, it's a little hard to relax and just, just be honest, be true, and get to your deep voice. I have techniques in writing for how to get to the deep voice. I have a thing called the transformation line, which is a, um, a certain kind of statement that you, uh, as I say, you massage it. It means you take it deeper and you, you go deeper and deeper into it. Um, but when you're doing that, you can't be thinking of your plot or your story. And again, everybody, when they start to write, they, they first think of a story. They think of what they're going to write about. Death 
If you, if you know what you're going to write about before you write about it, you're in trouble. But most people don't want to write about what they don't know they're going to write about because then it might not be good. And no one wants to take that chance. So they start out with, hmm, what can I write about? Oh, I know. I'll write about that time my my grandfather slipped and fell off the roof into the fish pond. Yeah, that'll make a good story. And then they start to write a good what they think is a good story. Instead of just approaching the writing from nothing, a very zen kind of an idea, you begin with nothing and see where it wants to go. Most people don't want to risk that because if you do that, you might write something bad and people don't want to fail. But if you're willing to fail, then sometimes you, you strike it rich. Can those who are worried so much about failure do exercises to lessen that, to, to make themselves feel either more at home on the stage or at home uh, bearing their words to people that might criticize them? Well, I do use the term exercises. Um, in Stanislavski, who did method acting, uh, he's got the word concepts. And uh, I also was in Second City and did improvisational theater and even taught classes in it. Uh, they use something called theater games. So if anyone ever watches that TV show, um, um, uh, what's the name of it? Whose Line Is It Anyway? Um, they always have a, a little game they have to play. So you, you have these points of focus, an exercise, a theater game, a concept, and you learn these concepts. And if you focus on the concept, then you're not focused on the story. So you can actually practice that. But when you say an exercise, to me, every time you write, you're doing an exercise. When I'm in rehearsal for a play, and then opening night comes. I don't suddenly go, oh, it's opening night. I can act. What you've been rehearsing is not acting. In the whole six weeks of, or two weeks of your rehearsal, you're rehearsing to be true. So when opening night comes, you don't suddenly start acting. You are continuing to do that work. So to me, the exercise is what you do when you are writing. And if you fail... Now we go into a different issue, which is an issue for a lot of people who are successful in life with anything. People who are successful in life with anything, they interpret failure differently than people who tend to be unsuccessful. When, when people tend to be unsuccessful, they interpret failure as evidence that they're not good at that. So then they try something else. Successful people, whether you're a writer or an insurance salesman or a banker or whatever, a bank robber, you know, it applies to everything. When you have learning how to juggle, okay? I'm supposed to drop the ball 100 times. I don't drop the ball once and twice and then I think, well, I can't juggle. I go, yeah, that's, that's what happens when you learn how to do something, you fail. So a successful person, they interpret failure as what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to fail. And then you keep doing it, and you fail some more, and you fail more. Or as Samuel Beckett said, uh, fail, uh, try again, fail again, try again, fail better.
In other words, I'm supposed to fail. And when I fail, it means I'm on the road toward learning how to juggle successfully. So that's the real difference. And the way to prevent failure is to always aim for good. Because ultimately, everybody can be good. But to be great means you have to risk failing. And unless you're willing to risk failing, you won't be great. So when people fail at something, they go, oh, I guess I'm not good at that. But successful people interpret failure as, yeah, I'm supposed to fail. And I'll keep failing. And eventually, I'll get better. And I'll learn how to juggle. And I'll learn how to do it. So that's the, the key. It's not about failing. It's how you interpret failure. That's the big difference. Hey, you're more nervous than I am. Oh, yeah. No, I get very nervous. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping to, I like it, Yeah. fail it's, better each time and, and right. not just aim for good. Um, well, see, that's another thing. Uh, my, my acting teacher used to always say, uh, when you're nervous before performance, don't try to get rid of the nervousness. Bring it with you into the scene. Because it's, a, it's an authentic emotion. And as he put it, never deny an authentic emotion on stage or in front of a camera. Never deny it. Never try to cover it up. So if in the middle of a scene you start laughing, laugh. If in the middle of the scene you're nervous, let that nervousness be there. When I do a poetry reading, I am always, ask my wife, she'll tell you, my palms get sweaty and I'm, I'm a wreck. And, and I want to be, I know that's good. I go, okay, good. It means I'm alive. Because uh, if I was dead, I wouldn't be nervous. But if you're alive, you're afraid of failure. And if, when you're afraid of making a fool of yourself in front of 20 or 100 people, you get nervous. Well, that's good. I, sh I should be nervous. And what I try to do is not to dissipate it. The nervousness is really my friend because it means I am connected to this moment when I get up and I open you know, my book of poetry and I go, okay, my first poem is going to be you know, blah, blah, blah. If, if I'm confident, I, I, I'm going to be boring. You know, confidence is really pretty boring. You know, there's nothing worse than seeing somebody uh, think they know everything. It's, it's boring when you're performing, when you're acting, when you're reading. Um, so if you are nervous, hold on to it. It's your friend. Let it be. And when you start to read whatever that poem is, a story, if the poem makes you you're nervous... It's because there's something at stake. You might be writing about the time your father came home drunk and you, you tried to stop him from leaving and you pushed him down and he fell and here you are 12 years old and you feel like you just knocked your dad out. Or maybe you're writing a poem about when you were in, in Italy and you were 19 and you got a phone call from the father of of the boy you were traveling with. And he tells you, son, you have to come home. You're the man in the family now. And you don't even want to admit that you know what that means. So you say, what? I, I don't understand. Of course you understand. He's telling you your father died. But you go, what? I don't understand. He said, son, you're the man in the family now. Well, you know, that's, that's a moment that I relieve, relive and remember. It was like my whole world caved in. I was in Lake Como in Italy, and 
uh, it just changed my life. It just, I, I, I never thought that would happen. I, my father was like the most important man in my life. And uh, if you're writing something about that, then you should be nervous. It should bring you into the heart of your feelings, whatever they might be. For me, it was absolute terror, just terror that I would not know what to do. I felt my father was the wisest man I ever knew, and that even though I was 19, I felt that he would tell me the secret of life. And he hadn't told it to me yet, but he was going to. And when he died, I thought, I'll never know what the secret of life is. I'll never know how to survive because I want to be an artist and I don't know how you make a living as an artist. So maybe he would tell me, but he wasn't there anymore. And I was like lost for years because of that. And even now when I'm talking about it, I'm, I'm getting all, um, I'm feeling that feeling I had when I was just scared shitless about life that I wouldn't know what to do. And you know, the funny thing about it is, it's been, I don't know, 60 years since my dad died and I'm still not sure I know what the secret of life is and I'm still not sure I know how to survive. I can't believe I've survived this long, but I have, but I, I don't believe it, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand it. I don't know how people survive. You know, I always think they know something I don't know, so. Nervousness is good. How are how are Father's Days for you? How what? Father's Day, June twentieth. How is that? For Father's you? Day. Mm -hmm. You mean when when I'm a, the father of my son and any any time Father's Day comes up. I, I, you know, once my son was born, it was more a question of me being the father to him, and so that's what Father's Day was for me. That you know he would. Uh, get me something or write me a card and every card he wrote I've saved them I've got them on the on my bookshelves you know so I can see them and uh, you know he always would make me a Father's Day card um, you know I never thought about that um, I, th I think about my father so much or did think about him so much that I don't think I reserved one day that today's going to be the day I think about him. I thought about my father so much, especially when I was unsure or in trouble or worried or whatever. I would think, what would my father do? What would he say? What, what would, what, you know, what would he tell me? So I, I don't need Father's Day, you know. I, I, but he died when he was 54, I think. So when I made 54, I remember thinking, okay, because I always thought, will you live to be as old as he was? Uh, at the time, 54 seemed like uh, very old. But when I was 54, I, I felt like I just got started. My son was about five years old. So I became a father when I was 49. So, um, you, you know, I uh, at 54, I thought, okay, all the... Okay, now it's 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 me. You know, it's not him. Now it's now you know it's my turn. I've got to do it. So that was a big year for me when when I had turned fifty four.
Was it easy for you to write about this? I've written about my relationship with my father many times uh, in different ways. Um, and my mother, too, who was a kind of a crazy, according to my therapist, a paranoid schizophrenic. So I wrote about my own mother, too. But I've written about my father. Uh, I've written about being a father when Josh was born and I would have to go to Safeway and get diapers and Onfamil, the, the milk, you know, that you drink. So I've written about father issues quite a bit. Um, you know, Bukowski has that great poem about his own father. Uh, when he goes to his house after his father dies and he puts on uh, uh, his father's suit, which hangs on him a little loose. Um, the poem is called The Twins because he looks at himself in the mirror and he thinks, okay, now I'm my father. So we could be twins. So um, I guess you wrestle with your father one way or the other. Those who've had good fathers, those who had bad fathers. Um, my dad was a wise man, a great man, loved by everyone. He also had a problem. Uh, he was an alcoholic and a lot of anxiety in my family growing up. I'm a, quote, adult child of alcoholics. You know, that that was the thing. Um, but I didn't, I don't know if I wrote about him a lot after I got to be 54. I think at that point I kind of thought, well, okay, I got this far without knowing anything. Maybe I can, I can go the rest of the way without knowing anything. And I still don't know anything, you know. Every day when I wake up in the morning, it's a, you know, I, I, I try to guess what time it is by the light, you know, the light outside, that beginning of dawn, and I try to guess what time it is, and I'll, I'll look over and I'll, I'll see what time it is, and I'll think to myself, okay, another day, another day to write your poems and teach and, be, you know, love your friends and love the world. So that's a long answer to, to a very simple question you asked. Where's the green tape? <laughs> no, I don't want you to stop. It's great. I like it. I know there's a lot of emotion. I remember there was a, a clerk at a grocery store, and I had seen the person many times, and I was sort of friendly with them. And, and I'm not, it was Father's Day, and the clerk. So I forgot what happened, and he said, you're not wishing me a happy Father's Day, and I could see how hurt he was. And he goes, you think that just because I'm older, I don't, you know, and I could just see it was like a real wound to this person. Yeah. And I, I said to him, you know, the reason I didn't wish you that is because Father's Day wasn't a thing for me. I never knew mine, so that was why. So we were both coming to it with these two different things, but yeah. I could see even... He was he was still, you know, this was very hard for him. And here he was behind this cashier trying to save face. And, you know, I, I just remember that being a very um, interesting moment. I never forgot it. You know? Yeah, we don't have a lot of moments like that with people we don't know. I kind of knew him. Just just I would joke with him. And, and I actually never saw him after that. I don't know what happened to hmm. him. But wow. hopefully he's okay. But um, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that we don't know some, you know, fatherhood, motherhood, all those things are very, these are very sort of deep. You talk about the deep voice that yeah. these are things that we all carry our own wound or whatever with us. You know? Yeah. And um, 
you don't know whether you're supposed to play a role or what is it to be a father? You know, I I remember when my wife was pregnant, I when she called me on the phone to tell me she was pregnant, the first thought I thought was, okay, now now it begins, meaning I have to take life seriously. And then the night her water broke, we were watching um, Sleeping with the Enemy, a movie on TV, and it was about 11 o'clock at night. You know, you, you always want your water to break in the morning so you can go to the hospital and, and you've had a good night's sleep. But no, it was 11 o'clock at night, we were exhausted, and our water breaks, and we're driving to, the, to Kaiser, and I, I stop at a Ralph's or something, and I get ice because they said something about, you know, she can have ice or something like that. I don't know what it was. But I went into the Ralph's with the neon lights, and everything was real bright. And it was 11, 11.30 at night. And again, I just had that, got a little ice chest, put the ice in. I remember thinking, okay, this is it. You know, you're, we knew it was a boy. Your son's going to be born very soon, and your life is going to totally change. So there was that feeling that everything was going to be different. Well, nothing really changes. You just go on day by day being and dealing with what you have to deal with. But in my imagination, I thought, you know, it was like, okay, showtime. You know, it's like you're doing a play and they go, you're on. And then you have to walk out there and I'm the father. Where's my lines? And they go, uh, uh, th there are no lines. I go, what do you mean? They go, well, we, we don't have any lines. Well, there's got to be lines. I mean, I'm a father. What's, what's the, what's the, you know, what's the role? What do I got to do? And they go, oh, I don't know. And they go, well, are you a father? He goes, yeah, but I don't know what the hell to do. Well, anybody here know what to do? No. I'm in front of 500 people here. What am I going to do? Well, you got to be a father. Yeah, but what is that about? I don't know. So you just go and do it. You know, that whatever role you think it is, it's not what you think it's going to be. I remember when Josh was in uh, third grade, I was driving him to school, and my son is very stubborn. I don't know where he gets it. <laughs> he gets it from me, of course. Uh, he's really stubborn. I mean, you know, you, you don't tell Josh what to do. And we're in the car, and I don't know, we got into something. He and I and my wife would always say, don't make it a fight, you know. I couldn't help it. You know, I'm going to hold my position. He's going to hold his. And before you know it, I'm kind of yelling and screaming and da-da-da. And we're just driving. It's a mess. We get to school, and it was my day to go to the kids and teach them how to write poetry. So I tell him, you know, write about something true and da-da-da. Anyway, I walk around the room and watch what the kids are writing just to see if they're doing okay. Sometimes a kid maybe doesn't quite know how to get started, and I help him. And there's my son writing about me yelling and screaming in the car. Now, I usually have the kids get up and read, and there was no way I could not have him do it if he wanted to because... I, that would be a bad lesson to teach him. So when it was time to read, I said, okay, who wants to read first? Josh raises his hand. I go, oh, shit. 
So he walks up, opens it up, and he's writing about being in the car with his dad who's yelling and screaming and blah, 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 blah. And the kids are like, I mean, they're, they're loving it, and at the same time, they're a little shocked. And I know they're all looking at me. They want to see how am I going to react to it. And I just listened to it like I was listening to a piece of writing. And then when he was finished, I went, good, good. I said, you know, the part there where you mentioned that, you could write a little more about that, you know, make it. Now, as I responded to it like it was a piece of writing worthy of being commented on. Uh, but, you know, how do you plan for something like that? You know, there are the kids. I'm the teacher. And he's writing about me, you know, being a kind of. Uh, not very empathetic father. So, you know, I don't know. Whatever's in the handbook, uh, it wasn't in the handbook I got. You just sort of stumble your way through and hope you do your best. Um, I think that's why in um, Saving Private Ryan, um, at the very end of the movie, when he he goes to the grave uh, of the major who saved his life, and, you know, he's an old man now, and, and he uh, hopes that, that his life was worthy of being saved. I broke down in the movie theater because the way I related to it was at that point when I saw the movie, I hope my life will be worthy as a father, as a husband, as a friend. And, man, I was just... Uh, it's, it's probably the most I've cried in a movie ever in my life when he said, I, I hope my life will be worthy. So you, you make a lot of mistakes. You fail, right? You fail. And when you fail, you, you got to go, well, this is what's supposed to happen. And that day that Josh wrote this piece about the car ride over, that was the deeper voice? Yeah, it was a deep voice. And he was writing about something that was like pretty brave, gutsy of him to write about that. You know, I mean, I'm his father. I'm the teacher. I'm coming into the classroom as the teacher teaching everyone how to write. And I'm telling them, as a matter of fact, I read a poem about my own father. Come to think of it, that's part of the lesson. So he went and did it, you know, bravo for him. So, like I said, you... I, I had to validate that. I, I couldn't, uh, one, tell him, no, no, don't read that, Josh. It'll make me look bad. Well, if it made me look bad, too bad. Because what he wrote was good. And as a teacher and as a father, I have to reinforce for him that this is how you make art. You tell the truth. You, you take risks. You write about what's hard to write about. You say in literature there are four basic voices or tonalities? Well, five if you count your own voice, your natural speaking voice as a writer. So the other four, there's only four other tonalities in all of Western literature. And um, I have a standing offer to any of my students if they can comb any piece of writing uh, from Homer to the present and find a page or a paragraph or even one sentence that's not one of those four, 
then I will give them, and, and I have a, one of those play money says a billion dollars, and I hold up the billion dollar bill, and I go, if you can find a sentence that's not one of those four, and I hold up the billion dollar bill, say, I'll give you a billion dollars. And so far, no one has collected it. So there's only four basic styles or tones or voices, depending on how you want to look at it, in all of Western literature, beside writing in your own, your own tone. And then there's the other four. And those other four are? Uh, Tommy, Billy, Sarah, and Becky. Oh, okay. Oh, I know <laughs> Becky. Yeah, she's good. I like her. Um, well, one of them is what I call straight talk. Uh, all the, the, the names I use come from a poem by another writer. So Nikki Giovanni has a poem called Straight Talk. So I use that, in other words, and, and these would all be <clears throat> writing in your own voice. I cover that, uh, how to get the voice deep and all that, in my, uh, my first book on method writing called Method Writing. Uh, and then uh, the four voices that you just asked me about, uh, I cover in my second book. Uh, it's called Advanced Method Writing. And at the bottom it says The Art of Tonal Dynamics. So it's how to take these four tones and use them the way uh, a composer of music would use different kinds of musical percussion effects and, you know, whatever, because tones change in music uh, very deep, and then suddenly it becomes light and so forth. So the four tones that I have, I have names for them, straight talk means you're not in the deep voice. You're very chit-chatty. Uh, everything is, boy, you won't believe what happened last night. I mean, there I am standing on the corner, and would you believe it? A guy comes up, and he's got a cigarette in his nose, and I thought, you know, very chit-chatty. The opposite of the deep voice. The second voice is uh, that writerly, poetic style that a lot of writers use and that a lot of writers think you're supposed to write like that, where you give metaphors and similes and fancy description and all that kind of stuff. And on a scale of 1 to 10, you could do it in a subtle way or you could do it in a very extreme way. So, for instance, if you read William Faulkner or Marcel Proust, these are writers who write in a very ornate style, almost at a 10. But then there are other writers who use a little bit of style, but they're only at a one or a two. But it's all not writing in your natural voice. It's a heightened style. Then the third voice is the oldest technique in all of writing. Uh, it's where you repeat. It goes to the Bible. You know, it goes all the way back to the Bible where you, you, you repeat things three times, four times, five times. So a lot of your great politicians or preachers will use this voice. I have a dream that one day, blah, 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 blah. I have a dream that one day, blah, 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 blah. I have a dream that one day, blah, blah, blah. Nobody remembers the blah, blah, blah. But everybody remembers the I have a dream speech because by repeating it, he makes that a kind of drumbeat, a rhythmic pulse. So that is the most ancient form of writing. That was how people remembered because people couldn't read. So even if someone wrote something, they would, they would perform it. The repetition of phrases, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times uh, from Charles Dickens. Or the Bible, there's a time to 
to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to sow, a time to buy and a time, you know. The repetition creates a way to remember because people couldn't read, so you had to know to remember. So that device, that repetition, is a technique that can be used in more ways than you realize. So when I teach it, first people have to know how to do it. You know, it's just how to do it. Then you learn many different ways you can use it. There can be subsets of the repetition with different repetitions. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. See, these people around that time, they studied what was called the, the Greek and Latin revival. And that was one of the things you studied if you went into politics or into religious preaching was the repetition. You studied that. So Lincoln's Gettysburg Address comes directly from that where you, you repeat something. He talks about in the Gettysburg Address, we've come here to uh, dedicate a portion of this field as a final resting place of those who here gave their lives that uh, you know we may live, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. So we cannot, we cannot, we cannot. 237 words, I think, is the Gettysburg Address. If you go through it, you will find five or six places where Lincoln repeats something like a mantra three, four, sometimes five times in a row. And he does it at the very end, at the very end, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom and something, something, what is it? Do you remember how he ends his speech? Of the people, by the people, for the people. So that's a repetition. That is a technique that he learned in, in his studies. So that's the third voice. Then the fourth one is actually not a voice. It's where you use language in a non-communicative way, um, where you're writing almost stream of consciousness or, or um, absurd images, or maybe you've got someone who's got Alzheimer's or someone is drunk, but it's language that is not used in a normal, linear way. And poets and writers have been doing that for at least over 100 years, started in France with Arthur Rimbaud and Baudelaire, and, and then the Russian futurists were doing it. They created a thing called Zom poetry that didn't make sense and so forth. So any writing that is kind of like modern art where you have cubism or abstract painting or abstract expressionism where you're just seeing a lot of crap on the canvas. Well, what would be the analogy of that with words? Well, it would be words and sentences that don't make any sense. In other words, I did a whole book of what I, and I called it absence of field because there's no logical field to it. It's all disconnected on the page. So I kind of took that idea and I have a book called Lucky Finds um, in which I put it all on cards. So when you when you got my book, um, oh, I'm back. Um, it's called Lucky Finds. So, but actually, it's not a book. It's a bunch of cards. And if you, and when I teach in in the classroom with kids, I lay all this out on the floor, and the kids absolutely love it. You know, I just spread all the cards out on the floor, and they're, uh, you know, they're just. I mean, things are this way and that way, and. I hand drew those letters that you see there, 
What is that? There's another one. There's another one. Can what you are see on that the cards? On camera? A that, little bit. Yeah. What? I'm just curious. What? What are some of like? If you chose one, as they're different letters. So. Yeah. Yeah, they're hand drawn. I, okay. I draw them, and sometimes the writing is upside down and sideways. I'll do a different font, but each piece is kind of a. Um, it, it hangs together in a way, but it's up to the reader to figure it out. Something like that. But when I show this to kids in school, we spread all the cards out on the floor. And then they make their own. And they get, they just love it. They, they absolutely love it. Um, See, so yeah, on this one, you got to read it this way. Then you got to turn it upside down and read it that way. Um, oh, here's one where I just have a lot of negative space. And it just says, carbon cycle, illustrious, and then there's those two letters. So, you know, I play with forms. So it's not just like you're reading a story or a poem. It's all broken up. There. Anyway, there's 52 of them. And uh, it's called Lucky Finds because it's like you come across something on the pavement and you pick it up and go, oh, a quarter. Huh, a lucky find. For a new writer, should they try these different tonalities or personalities or just stay in the beginning with their authentic voice and then once they have mastered that, then venture out to these other sort of areas? Well, you know, as I said, I'm kind of an old athlete and I learned boxing and swimming and football and basketball and how to play golf. Uh, I always noticed that when you're being taught, you're being taught from the ground up. Uh, you, you're being taught basic movements and then you build on that. For instance, when I was boxing, um, I spent a long time not being allowed to throw punches. Everything had to be footwork. And I thought, come on, when do I get to punch somebody? But when you learn footwork, you discover that a punch will have as much strength, not as your power here, but in your legs. And if you are balanced when you throw a punch, and if you are transferring the energy from the legs to the body, you get more power. So everything depends on the legs and, and the stance. Same with tennis. When you're playing tennis, if, if your feet are too close together or too far apart, you don't have as much balance or power. So one of the things you learn playing tennis is you learn to run to where the ball is and then plant your feet correctly before you swing. Because if your feet are planted correctly, then the swing, you know, if you learn how to do the swing, that would be the next thing. Uh, but your foundation is very important. So in my first class in method writing, it's all about the voice, how to manipulate the natural voice. And yeah, you practice. We, we have exercises that you do from week to week, and we work on that. Then when you go to my advanced class, now we work on the four voices. And again, you're practicing. And at some point, uh, we have an exercise where you get a pair of dice, and you throw the dice, and each number corresponds to one of the concepts you've learned up to this point. So if a number two comes up, and let's say it's the... Uh, the fancy schmancy voice. 
you've got to write four lines of fancy schmancy. Then you roll the dice again, and oh, six comes up. What is that? Oh, that's uh, straight talk. Where, hey, well, you won't believe what happened. But it's all the same piece. It's, a, it's all a coherent idea or story, but you're switching every four lines. And so everybody thinks, oh, this is not going to make any sense. But it ends up making perfect sense because you're changing tonalities. And it's the change of tonalities that makes for drama more than just the drama in the story. I, I don't know if you fully get that. The story isn't where the drama is. The drama is in the tonalities that you switch. And great composers, when they write, they don't just write the same note a hundred times. They're changing. Uh, when, when Beethoven took my class uh, early on, uh, he had written a symphony and he brought it in and the opening of the symphony went this way. Da-da-da-da! Da 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 I said, Ludwig, it's a little boring. You're doing nothing but the deep voice. Why don't you do like the straight talk voice, you know, where you you get high like that? And he said, Oh well, I got to try that. I will do that next week. And then he comes in next week and he did the deep voice, but then he switched to that very light voice. So now when you listen to the Fifth Symphony, it goes I go, very good, Ludwig. You're getting the idea of tonal dynamics. You want to switch those tones. So when they do that dice thing, it surprises a lot of them. They go, wow, that really worked. The piece made sense. Those changes in tone didn't give the reader whiplash. It just felt like good writing. And good writing is tonal dynamics. And one of the reasons why a lot of people's stories are boring is because the voice is the same all the way through. Can we practice something right can, now? Can we? Yeah, together. Can, can you yeah. give me an assignment and I'll and, and then correct me? Can I? Can are you going to write it or are you going to well, say it? Well, I'll just probably say it. Just maybe, I don't know, if I was in the class okay. and, and it's, you were it's testing hard to, me. to say it. I mean, it's about writing, but okay. uh, I've given you the four voices, right? Plus writing like you talk, right? So you got writing like you talk. You've got that that high voice that's a lot of chit-chat stuff. Boy, you won't believe what happened. And then, man, you know, knock me for a feather, but I was there, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Then there's the fancy voice, poetic. Very, lots of images, metaphors, similes, all that kind of crap. And then there's that read and sung where you take something and you repeat it. Anything, it doesn't matter. Whatever you say, you can repeat it three times. Whatever you say, you can say it twice. Whatever you say, you can say it louder. Whatever you say, you can say it softer. Whatever you can say, you can say it with more feeling. Whatever you say, you can say it deadly. In other words, any phrase is repeatable. You just have to repeat it and then add the rest of the sentence. The rest of the sentence is what would be different. See, in a larger sense, we cannot, what, dedicate. We cannot, what, 
consecrate. We cannot, what? Hallow this ground. So that's the repetition. And then uh, the last voice is total nonsense. Now, do you want to do it? Is that what yeah. you want to do? Do you want to give me a topic? I, I, I couldn't. I can't oh, do no. We, just, we don't do topics. You don't do right. topics. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't do windows. You don't do, no we window. don't okay. do topics. <laughs> I got to call your manager here then. So you're just going to, in other words, I'm, I'm going to call out the voice. In other words, what I want you to do is just to talk. And if you talk, eventually you'll probably get into something you remember or something will come up. Don't worry about it. So if you fail, who cares? You know, okay, what you right, about? yeah, who cares? However, uh-huh. I will say, if I say straight talk, or if I say lost world, that's fancy schmancy. If I say read and sung, that's the repetitious voice. If I say absence of field, meaning no rhyme or reason, just nonsense. And if I say like you talk, just talk like you talk. Okay, so you'll just start uh, blabbing about anything. Okay. Are you ready? I think so, yeah. Okay, ready, go. Okay. Noticing that food prices are going up a lot, it's, things seem very expensive, and uh, I'm not quite sure why, but... Um, Straight talk. It's, it's really, you're going into the market, and I'm noticing a dollar increase in what I normally buy. No, you're still talking like you talk. You got to get that high voice. Okay. I went in the market like, God, what am I, crazy? Did I get it? You know, you got okay. go, to go up there. Okay. So um, keep going, straight talk. So I'm at the market the other day, and there's this woman, and she's in my way, and I'm trying to get to the food, and the stuff is not on sale like I thought it was supposed to be, and then I see Red that... Red song. Sorry, that one is the... Repetition. Repetition. The food that we eat brings us life, but if life brings us nothing but bills and duty Good. and chores and errands and they they don't take us anywhere and lost life. world fancy schmancy oh according to the gdp uh no <laughs> let me let me rephrase that um it's hard to do it when you're yeah, talking because we don't talk that way no 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 see it's almost as if i'm writing a a letter or something um it has come to my attention that food prices have escalated beyond the normal day-to-day. More poetry. Come on. Okay. Fancy schmancy. It has come to my attention that food, which is life, which is what sustains us, which is what gives us a reason to be with our loved ones and, and break daily bread and and. and Love, love one another, and and come together as community. Good, but you're not writing in that style. You're still talking like you talk. Okay. It would have to be poetic bullshit. Okay, I thought it was, but because, yeah. <laughs> no, no, okay. you you were doing uh, not good phrases. Okay. But you could talk that way. Okay. So, but you got to write poetically. And what's the one that's abstract? Where because I'm... life. Because life streamed out like a rhythm upon the cloistered hills of, of existence, breaks however many stars that fuel the clouds that break into the heart and expose the truth of your own soul, rigid against tribulation, striven against death, broken open against life, the platitudes of existence and the small icicles that form inside the caverns of your soul break out of you. You know, that's bullshit. 
But that's lost world. You got to be able to do that shit. Okay, wow. Okay. And it's hard to do it when you're talking. See, that's why this is about writing. It's not about talking. Okay. So it's, it's harder for you to do that. But that's what you would have to shift into. And then keep going. Absence of field. And that is where I'm almost um, asked not what your country can do for you. No, but no you're no. making sense. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Um, so food, life, love, death, honor. That's a field. Because you're saying one word at a time, each one is different, but that's a field. It, it's, a, it's a logical progression. So each unit can't be the same as the one before, or else you're establishing a field, like an electrical field, a gravitational field. This is no field. So the words and the phrases are like all jumbled up. But if you just do the same thing, that's a field. So you could do two of them, but then the third thing's got to be a phrase. Then another phrase. Then something, you know, you got to just keep breaking sentence structure around. You have to practice these things. They're not as simple as, no, you, this is as difficult. you think, you know. Very difficult. Yeah. Cust, custom shaved nether of any kind of the sofa retains black teeth of soft. There, in the eyeballs of no one, came it father, hair, broken, nostril, the shiny light of the sea that protrudes over the waves. Here, nowhere, stream, captain, broken arrow. It's always in the gut of nothing was done. He was a champion. See, I'm just... Blah, 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 blah. That's absence of field. Right. Nothing can ever connect or converge. You can't have a field. Uh, Writing, a sentence is a field. I okay. Subject, verb, object. Proposition, you know, it's okay. Sentences of fields. This would be an absence of field. Math, gold, belly of the beast, golden wheat, air. Something long now, because you've done a lot of short things. Ask not what your country can do for you. Good, but don't finish the sentence. Ask not what your country can, and then stop. See. Okay. But and, that's a technique that's been used in writing in the 20th century by a lot of writers, including uh, James Joyce, the stream of consciousness. And you might do that if you were having a character who was either having a hallucination or they were demented, having dementia, or someone is falling. And you're trying to, what it's like to be falling, what goes through a person's mind, not in normal sentences, but everything is colliding because it's all happening in five seconds as they're falling. So you could use the technique to, con someone's drowning, you know, you would use absence of field for that. And so in, in these four other tonalities, not the, the regular voice, quote unquote, that sharpens the, the tool, that, that strengthens the muscle? How, how does that help? Do you pay attention to how the writer is working or do you just enjoy the story? Depends. Depends on whether I'm playing something or reading something and there are other distractions going on. Okay, what about music? Well, do you listen to any kind of classical music at all? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. Well, have you ever listened to Bruckner and really paid attention to what Bruckner does compared to, let's say, Brahms? Bruckner is absence of field, a lot. 
Bruckner's got tonalities and changes that are very mysterious and very sublime, whereas Brahms has got these melodies that roll over, almost like to be read and sung. So if you pay attention to writers, and you pay attention to composers, and you pay attention to almost any kind of art, Picasso, uh, any painter, you will see that they do different things all the time. Yeah, they might have their basic, I'll say, writing in their own voice uh, approach, but they use all these other techniques. The next time you read a book, you know, a good novel, I promise you, you're going to see writing like you in your own voice. You're going to see Lost World, which is poetic, you know, fancy description or something. You're going to see Red and Sung once in a while. Look, Charles Dickens opens up Tale of Two Cities with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the season of this, it was the winter of discontent. You're going to see repetition. You're also going to see Absence of Field sometime where the work is very uh, stream of consciousness, whether it's James Joyce or Virginia Woolf or Toni Morrison or writers who do that. You're going to see it, but you can't be reading for pleasure. You have to be reading like you're paying attention. I know how to drive a car. I would have no idea how to fix the engine. But a mechanic, he understands how the engine works. And when people look at writing, most people, they don't look under the hood to see what's going on. They just learn how to drive and turn the wheel and start and stop and go fast and go slow. But a, a writer, if you study writing, that question you asked, asked me, Karen, you will go, oh, look, he just went from writing like you talk to fancy schmancy. Oh, look, he just went from fancy schmancy to uh, straight talk. Uh, Holden Caulfield, Catcher in the Rye, does it all the time. So you will see those four tones and the tone of writing in your own voice. You will see that being done just the way Beethoven went. You will see these changes of tone, of tonality, of dynamic. That's why I call it tonal dynamics, because it's dynamic, it changes. So you're going to see it in literature all over the place. So is the first part of becoming a better writer to pay attention? Not just to your own writing, to other works of art, not even, not even literature, but music. Um... There's no great writer that hasn't paid attention to almost every writer that came before them, going all the way back to Gilgamesh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Augustine's Confessions, uh, Catullus's poems in the first century BC, uh, you know, it, Dante, they, they know it all. And they don't just read for pleasure. They read like a writer. They read like an artist. They pay attention. They study. Oh, look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. And then they copy it a little bit, and then they extend it even further. You know, uh, artists are always influenced by the artists who came before them, and then they go one better. So, yeah, whatever you do, whether you're a sculptor or a painter or a writer or a composer, um, yeah, you got to study the people who came before you and see what they're doing. Because it's a, it's a conversation. Artists are talking to each other across the millennia. They're talking. And you want to see what the conversation is. 
You want to know what Dante said to Shakespeare and what Shakespeare said to Homer and what Homer said to uh, uh, Philip Roth or Anne Sexton. You know, what are they saying? Not in the, me in the message, but in the technique. In the technique. Oh, oh look what, Brahm, look what uh, Bruckner did. Look at the way he extended that chord and did a variation. That was interesting. That was different from anything Beethoven did. Oh, look what Mahler did. Look how he did that. You study it. Any composer, you ask them, man, they've studied them all. So being conscious and, and you of want technique. to see absence of field? Check out Elliot Carter, uh, oldest. He might be dead by now, but he was in his hundreds, hundred last time I heard. He wrote a string quartet just recently. Listen to Beethoven's last six string quartets. A lot of that is absence of field. As a matter of fact, if you listen to Beethoven's um, piano sonata 110 or 111, I can't remember which one it is. I was listening to it one day, and there's like a four-bar section in there that if you hear it, you, if, if you're listening, you'll hear it. It's jazz. Where he got it, I don't know. I mean, boom. But if you listen, but it, it, all of a sudden it's jazz. And then it goes back to the normal kind of progressions that they did in, in Beethoven's time. Um, so his string quartets, his late piano concertos, you're going to hear a lot of stuff and you're going to go, well, where'd that come from? How did he do that? Because as an artist, you always want to see not what did they do, but how did they do it? How did they create that? It's not about the plot or the story. It's about the technique. How did they do that? How did they do that? How does a writer know they have written something in their true voice? I think you, you know, you, you, you know what, what true writing is. You know, you, you know what it is. I mean, I know when I'm bullshitting. How do you know? You, you just know. I, I, I know it. Actors know it even in the middle of doing it. Actors can be in the middle of a play and at some moment they can go, uh-oh, I'm bullshitting. And then... Actors have techniques to get them back grounded. They look at the other actor, they connect with their being, as opposed to acting. So you know when you're bullshitting. Uh, now, with writing, it's not about whether you're not being true, it's about are you writing sentences that you wouldn't speak? That's the difference between writing in your own voice and writing in those other four tones that are not a natural voice. Red and sung, lost world to be uh, uh, straight talk and absence of field. Those are not natural voices. Those are literary. You you wouldn't write like that were it not for the fact that we live in a post-literate era, age. I mean, you read books, so you have learned from school how to write like a writer. You you write that way all the time. You use prepositional phrases and and. Uh, participle clauses, because it's writing. You you put in adjectives and adverbs like you bought a stamp collecting kit full of them, and you're using them. You wouldn't do that if it weren't not for writing. If this was a pre-literate society, everything you write would be like you talk, because there would be no other way to write. But once you start developing these these techniques or styles, 
then you learn that in school and you mimic that when you write. And when you want to be a writer, you throw in adjectives and adverbs and fancy verbs. You don't say he said, you say he responded. When was the last time you were talking to someone and saying, yeah, and I came home and uh, I asked my brother what he was doing and he responded by saying, but no, you never do that. You say, I said, you know, where did you go last night? And he said, well, I, I stayed out. And I said, the whole night? And he said, yeah, the whole night. And I said, you know, you're going to get in trouble with mom and dad. And he said, that's how we talk. We don't go, he responded. And then I murmured. And then I averred. And then I retorted. You, you learn that in school. You wouldn't write that way unless you learned it in school from writing. So you attune yourself to the difference between writing like you talk and writing in a literary way. Just like a, a musician knows when they hit a flat or a sharp note. They hear it. So you, if I'm, okay, I'm sorry. You can hear it. If I'm writing and I know that, not that it's garbage, but it's, it's not true, it's not authentic, it's BS as, as to what you said earlier. Okay, could you, what do you mean by true? Well, that's what I'm trying to determine. Well, but authentic so, writing and something being true are two different things. Okay. I can lie, but I can do it in an authentic voice. How is that? We do it all the time. We make up stories, we lie. Well, all of a sudden we lie, we start doing it like a writer. <laughs> if we did that, everybody would know we're lying. Sometimes we lie better than when we... Look, the truth is just the facts. Saying the truth like you talk is the issue. Lying like you talk is the issue. Ask me to make something up. Okay. Um... Let's suppose you're an attorney and you're presenting your client's case and maybe you know your client's guilty, but this is your job to defend the person. The person's uh, maybe involved in a Ponzi scheme and maybe they had kids to support and their back was against the wall and they had to do what they had to do and it's your duty to defend this person. And which one of those sentences you just said are not like you talk? It's your duty to defend this person. I don't think I would say that. You wouldn't say what? It's your duty to defend this person. You wouldn't say that? I don't think so. You just said it. Right, but I don't think I would say it in my real voice. That is your, that's your sentence. Okay. You're not talking like a writer. You're talking like a poison. A poison, okay. Oh, yeah. You're writing like hey, you talk. Oh. <laughs> okay, so then help me out here. So, because we're, we're doing like a, a little bit of a... a of yeah, a, okay. Okay, so, so then... Is See, that my authentic voice? You or? can't talk like a writer. You don't know how to do that. But you know how to write like a writer because they're two different things. And it's very hard for someone who thinks that writing fancy is how they talk to say to them, no, don't do that. You wouldn't use that adjective there. You wouldn't use that adverb there if you were just talking. Then people have to, just like with acting, sometimes people are overacting and they don't even know it. Oh, they think they're great, but they're overacting, you can smell it a mile away. So you have to develop what Hemingway called the bullshit detector, where you can know when you're writing an authentic sentence. This doesn't mean it's true. It could be a lie. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you writing 
Are you acting true? Look, if, if I'm going to be Hannibal Lecter, I don't eat people's flesh, but I got to act like I do. So it isn't about what the story is about. It's about my ability as an actor to look real, whether I'm talking about eating flesh or talking about eating a, a ribeye steak. I, I still got to be talking and performing like what I'm doing is true. So when I write something that's a lie, I still got to write it in, in my natural voice. And if I don't, I should know how to do that and do it on purpose. But that's writing. It's very hard for people to talk like in poetic form. Or it's very hard. We're not, we're not trained that way. Uh, Gore Vidal and maybe William Buckley could do it. You know, they could uh, pontificate. Uh, the American economy, such as it was labeled during the time of Lincoln, when uh, unbeknownst to both of them, the forces of capitalism had somehow merged with socialism, had therefore, even though uh, people were not aware of it, catapultized itself in such a way that the proclivities of those who traded in the market absconded with whatever kinds of um, dough, we might say, that they could lay their hands on, if you know what I mean. See, that's William Buckley. Nobody talks that way. That's Buckley or Gore Vidal. They know how to speak like that. If I'm a, a defense lawyer in front of a jury, I'm going to talk naturally. I'm not going to talk like a professor of English. But if I had to talk that unnaturally, I probably would write it and memorize it because it wouldn't come naturally to me unless as a defense attorney I did it a lot. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, on a windswept night when my client, unbeknownst to the proclivities of his own heart, trampled across the snow-covered lawn of the murdered victim. He didn't know, realize, or even perceive that life, thread, moved, stretched to the very end of its core, had somehow, in the being and nothingness of time, caused him to freeze and be unable to pick up the axe, frozen, standard, held up against the light of the sun and smash it against the victim's head. No, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he did not have the intestinal fortitude to advance step by inch and step by foot into the den of the victim's own criminal activities. See, that's not how you talk. That's a lot of bullshit. But it doesn't have to be true or a lie. That's separate from how I say it, how I write it. You either write the way a person talks or you write in a literary style and you have to know the difference between the two and you have to know when to do one and when to do the other. Just like a good actor sometimes knows when to act. Sometimes you have to act. You're being natural and then all of a sudden you take a line and you go, I'm going to do this like Shakespeare. Now, have you ever seen the movie, um, I think it's called Network? Do you know? Do you know the scene? Do you know the scene where um, it's in the newsroom. He brings him into that room, uh, Mr. Beale, and he tells him that what he's doing he, he can't do anymore because he's really upsetting the whole business structure of 
of uh, television and money and all that stuff. So they go into that room where there's a long table and there's those green lights that they use in boardrooms. And he brings him in and he sits him down at one end of the ring and then he goes to the other end. <clears throat> and then the lines he has is, Mr. Beale, you have tampered with the forces of nature. Okay? Now, Ed Beatty made a decision. I'm going to say this line like you might say it in Shakespeare, not the way a person would talk. Now, the line is written as it's written, but an actor has to interpret it. That's different from a writer writing something in a forced literary way. So here's an actor who's being natural, and then suddenly he becomes very uh, Shakespearean. Um, now, I will do the scene for you. Uh, he says, um, uh, Mr. Beale, um, uh, have a seat. Do you, would you like a glass of water? Uh, okay, I, I just, I just a couple things I want to go over with you. He walks right over there. Uh, Mr. Beale, you have tampered with the forces of nature. You see, Mr. Beale, the economy is a small thing. And when you tell people that, see, so he switched from talking in a natural voice to a kind of a Shakespearean big kind of thing. Well, writers can do that too. They can be writing in a natural sentence structure and then they can shift into something poetic. And it might only be for one sentence because they want to kind of give something extra to the moment and they know how to do that. So the acting analogy I gave you, it's an acting analogy. The writing analogy would be speaking in a normal way, and then all of a sudden you're getting very poetic and then writing it that way. And you have to know the difference. You know, and as Hemingway said, you have a built-in detector that can tell when you're doing it inadvertently. If you do it, you want to do it on purpose. And you want to know how to write in that fancy style, and you want to know how to write in a very simple way. When Falstaff in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, sees Prince Hal, who's now the king, and when the King Henry the Fourth was just the prince, and he hung out with Falstaff, who's a rogue and a thief and a big buffoonish comic character. Uh, once he becomes king, Falstaff is so excited. He tells all his minions, now that he's king, he's going to call me into the castle and I'm going to have a job and I'm going to make a lot of money. And, and, and Falstaff is thinking how he's going to be able to steal money and all that sort of stuff. And then the scene comes where the coronation comes and Hal is walking down, you know, with the, the coronation. And Falstaff is in the crowd and he rushes out and he says, Hal, my boy, my prince... And he was expecting Hal to look at him and say, Falstaff, oh, come, you know, the whole thing. But Hal is now king. And Hal, as king, Henry IV, must renounce everything that Falstaff stood for to be a good king. That's what Shakespeare was writing about. What does it take to be a good king? You've got to be a man of the people, but you also have to know how to be a king. So Falstaff says, and Falstaff is the richest, probably the most loved character in all of Shakespeare because he's funny and he's very human and we see how he's full of shit. So we, we love him. You know, great actors play Falstaff. Uh, he goes, 
Prince, my boy. And he opens his arms and Hal looks at him and he says, I know thee not, old man. Fall to thy knees. Presume not that I am the thing that I was. Whew. That is pretty powerful. And except for the thee, it's writing like you talk. You talk about Shakespeare. I know thee not, old man. Presume not I am the thing I was. Fall to your knees. It's writing like you talk. And Shakespeare knows how to write like you talk, and he also knows how to write poetically. And if you go through Shakespeare's plays, you can see the differences and the changes, even with absence of field. When King Lear is on the heath going mad, blow winds, crack your cheeks, you know, and he goes crazy, some of that speech is nonsense. It makes no sense because King Lear is losing his mind. He's going crazy. And Shakespeare uses a little bit of absence of feel there. So all these techniques are used by writers, but if you didn't know to look for them, you wouldn't notice them. But if you know what you're looking for, you will notice them. Even straight talk. When would you say all of a sudden, well, anyway, when you I mean, that, we do that when we talk all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when I was 19, my father died and I had to come home and we had to bury him. Anyway, so how have you been? What's, what's going on? I mean, hey, tell me a little bit of something about your life, you know? Haven't seen you in 20 years. We, we do that in life. We can be deep and authentic and then all of a sudden we start talking with that jibber-jabber way. Well, to be or not to be, that is a question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against your sea of troubles and by opposing in them, to die, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. That's straight talk. Aye, there, aye there's, there's the trick. You know, you start doing that, and the next thing you know, you're out on your ass. That's basically what Shakespeare does there. Aye, there's the rub. And why does he do it? He does it because he knows that if you don't have changes of tone, it gets boring. Da 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 da. You know, it's boring. So to die, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. For in the sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Because there's the rub. And then he starts getting deep again, and he starts getting deep again. And he does straight talk a little bit later on when he figures out, uh, uh, you know, how he is going to get the king. Uh, uh, so Shakespeare does that all the time, little switches. He goes from writing like you talk to the deep, well, the, the, the lost world voice, that fancy voice. Man, he can do poetic stuff like, like he was born doing that. And he will go to straight talk. And sometimes, even absence of field, when he's got a character who's just spouting out nonsense for, because they're going mad or because they are a con man. You know, maybe they're a con man and they're kind of flummoxing you with uh, jibber-jabber. Shakespeare does all that, and he knows he's doing it. Go ahead. I oh, just we'll just wait. Might be my glasses Yeah, here. we'll just wait. And then here's a good joke I'll show you. You ready? Uh-huh. Oops, excuse oops, me. Oops, oops.
<laughs> I do that in, in reality. I, I'm doing that for my students because oh. I do that in class all the time. You know, I'll be going, well, um, you know, uh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> See, that's tonal dynamics too. You know, when, when, when you're pontificating, sometimes you got to know when to change the tone or else people get bored. Sometimes I do it too late. <laughs> They're already bored, but you know, you, you want to change the tone a little bit. Comic relief. Yeah, and, and a, a defense attorney to a jury, would a, a good one would know to do that. What is a writer's deep voice, and is there more than one inside of a writer at any time? You're talking about characters, right? Deep voice. Well, what there's only that? one deep voice. There's only one, okay. Yeah, it's a deep voice. Now, I could be the deep voice of one character, I could be the deep, deep voice of another, and there might be a difference in the character and how it would manifest, but the deep voice means you're coming from the deep gut. You're not, you know, you're, you're connected. But we're not, this isn't deep throat in, in, in calling in a tip to Woodward and Bernstein. This is a, a real person inside. This is, this is who you are, what you really feel. This isn't you pontificating. I'm confused. I'm sorry. I don't know what deep voice means. Um, it's talking in a way in which you're not entertaining anymore. You're, you're just coming from what you feel in a deep, deep way, and you're not trying to be a writer. You're not trying to perform. You're, you're just connected. When you're not in the deep voice, you're telling a story and you're entertaining. It was a cold night and a man walked out. You know, you're trying to entertain people. But when you're in the deep voice, you are connected in a true way to an emotion. You're connected to an emotion. So you're not just telling the story like a storyteller. You're connected to an emotion. Now, you may not do that for the whole story because there are parts of the story that might have to be tonal dynamic with a little lost world, a little straight talk, a little red and sung. But when you're in the deep voice, it, it's, it's like that um, commercial with uh, the guy about uh, uh, when E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. You know, when you hear the deep voice, you listen. You could be in a crowded restaurant and everybody's talking and then someone at the next table starts to whisper and ooh, Suddenly, your ear catches it. You don't know what they're saying, but you hear the tone of voice, and you go, oh, this is going to be personal. This is going to be deep and emotional. This is not just going to be him telling a story about how he spilled water on himself. You know, it's going to be deep. So when you were here in front of us just maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes ago, and you were telling us about the call that you got at 19, that was your deep voice. Well, I was reliving it in a way that it was emotionally coming into me, and I wasn't thinking of how do I write this or anything. I was just feeling it. When you're feeling something very authentically, you're, you're in a true place. Can you fake it? Sure. As a writer, as an actor, you, you learn where that comes from, and you can go there. You can do it technically. It's a, it's a technical thing. Coming from an emotion is technical. If you can do it where you really feel the emotion, that's better, better because then you don't have to act. But if you're a good actor, you can find a way to feel the emotion 
and then you're there. Some actors have to have a different memory to help them do that. When uh, in Apocalypse Now, when Martin Sheen was doing something in the film, he imagined the death of his own father that would make him get very emotional. It wasn't in the scene, but that's what he played inside his imagination, which allowed him to get an authentic feeling. It wasn't the same as in the film, but you didn't know that. You don't know what the actor's thinking. They, they once asked Clark Gable, when you tell a woman you love her in a movie, how do you say that with so much feeling? And he said, well, I just imagine they're a big porterhouse steak. <laughs> so an actor will maybe find an emotional memory to help them get that memory. Other actors know how to technically do it just to connect to their deep voice. And the same is in writing. When you're writing, um, you, you should know when you're writing from your deep voice and when you're just telling a story. And he had a heart attack on the set of Apocalypse Now, didn't he? Uh, who? Didn't Sheen have a, a, a heart attack? So, yeah. so I mean, he's still alive. Oh, yes, he's thriving and he's on shows and other films. But, but I wonder, I don't know what the circumstances were, but if he was imagining that death of his own father, how... how, how you mean it happened that in that scene? I don't know when it happened. I yeah, was just I, I don't know either. Oh. It may have. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought... You know. Maybe, maybe it was so real, it was so authentic. Could have been. Could I don't been. know. But, Sometimes yeah. actors do feel something that's so real. Um, you know, they find a way to personalize it if they need to. Sometimes you don't have to because you're acting and it's, you're believing what you're doing. But sometimes you, you can't, so you, you're really thinking something else in your mind to get the emotion out. Uh, well, sometimes an actor will do something that is so heavy that when the director says cut, they're still in that emotion. So uh, I'm not disputing whether he had a heart attack or not. Maybe he did. Uh, I guess hmm, acting can be dangerous. <laughs> you got to be careful. <laughs> Don't play any parts that might cause you to have a heart attack. I think I'll just play Peter Pan. Well, that would have its own. You might have to be too, too up and happy, and then yeah, you're that, right. That you could, see, so that, that I don't know if that would be safe so either. So art is art is fraught. There's an interesting rhyme: art and fraught. Art is fraught with danger. I like right that. There. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you know, that's your next yeah. book. Let's see. First, there's da <laughs> there's Dante. Abandon hope, all ye who enter. That'd be one. The second would be. Call me Ishmael. And the third would be, art is fraught with danger. Jack Grapes. <laughs> that, it's good to remember. You know, all of us who are writers or actors or filmmakers or whatever, we should write that and put it, you know, in our room to remind us art is fraught with danger. It'd be a good, good thing to remember. Is that a personal mission statement? No, I just said it. And oh, okay. I said it and I thought, oh, that's fun. <laughs> should, should a writer have their own personal mission statement? Um, you mean if we asked writers if they had a mission statement, would they have one? Maybe it's not even in full, flesh, fully fleshed out. There's just something in them. They know their own emotional. Yeah, they probably do. Um, I don't have to make one up because I, I know what Socrates said, and that to me is good enough. 
He said, know thyself. And then he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So those are two pretty good mission statements, wouldn't you say? The unexamined life is not worth living and know thyself. Know thyself. Do people but, still live an unexamined life in this day and age? Well, we all, to some extent. I mean, if I examined my life totally, I'd be writhing on the floor in agony. But, you know, I think you can, uh, you know, I've, I've been in therapy. I think a lot of people have had therapy or they've read books on spirituality or uh, whatever, you know, gone on retreats and meditations and whatnot. And I'm sure people have examined their life to some extent, of course. I think you said, though, that good art is not about... Um, and forgive me, uh, it, was, it was something you said about good art is not about, you know, kind of like getting all your issues out. It's also about making the viewer feel something. And forgive me, I, I'm... No, it's, that's true. You, you, yes. you know, you're, you're building a chair so people can sit in it. I mean, I can be as creative as I want about making a chair. Uh, I know my wife got a chair the other day that she really liked and, and we, we sat in it. You know, she, it looked great. She loved the way it looked. And she said, oh, I'm going to put that in my office and blah, blah, blah. And one day I sat in it and I went, boy, this chair is really uncomfortable. So the artist, on some level, they're making something that they hope will touch or astound or shock uh, the, the viewer. I mean, on one level, you're doing it for yourself. You're, you're exploring your own uh, technical materials. If you're a painter, if you're a writer, you're a sculptor. Uh, a good friend of mine who's a poet and a sculptress, um, she began experimenting with cardboard and made the most amazing things. But a lot of times she's just exploring the materials. What, what if I do this with the cardboard and I bend it this way and I glue it this way, you, you're experimenting with the material. Same with the writer. And other times, perhaps, you do care about what the viewer will think or get from it. If you write a story or a poem or something, you're, you're saying, okay, uh, what I wrote, you know, I'm, I'm, it came out of me, but it could be clearer. Uh, I'm, I don't think my reader's going to get it 100%. So what do I need to add or cut to make it work better? Because a piece of writing works. It's a, a piece of writing is like a machine. It works. You know, you get a machine from the hardware store and you plug it in and it doesn't work, you take it back. It might look good. All the parts are put together the right way, but something's wrong. It's not working. And then you bring it and go, oh, there's a washer here that needs to be put here. Ah, well, same thing with a piece of writing or a poem. I go, oh, that image there is not clear. If, if the image is not clear, then there's no payoff at the end. But, so I've got to make that image clear, and then the reader will get it when I get to the end. So you're, you're trying to figure out whether it's a novel or a story or a poem or a play or a screenplay, whatever, um, is it working here in this spot? So when you edit, you're not always just correcting grammar and punctuation. You're, you're thinking of it as a device that has to 
do something to the viewer or the reader. So, hmm, something's not working here. What is it? What do I have to do? Do I have to cut something, add something? Maybe move this over here. Oh, sometime when someone reads a poem in my class, I will say to them, read it backwards. Not word for word, but line for line. And it works better backwards because when we write, we either, I mean, it can work either way, we go from a, an idea to something specific or we start with some, something specific and as we develop the poem, we come into possession of a big idea. And sometimes it works better when you go from the idea to the specific and sometimes it works better when you go from the specific to an idea. So someone will read something to me and I'll go, oh, okay, they, they started with an idea and then they got specific. If they flip it, then the reader will get the specific first and then as the poet comes into possession of the idea, it will make more sense. Well, that's a kind of uh, simplified version of that, but when you're writing, you, you, you're thinking, does this work? It's a, it's a machine. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an object. You know, you put a quarter in and it should do what it's supposed to do. And when it doesn't, you fiddle with it. You think of, how do I make this work better? And, um, uh, you know, there's an old saying, writing is rewriting. So first drafts are usually, that's all, they're first drafts. Um, I've never written anything that didn't go through more than one draft. I, I, in other words, I've never written anything that was perfect the first time out. Now, you're supposed to ask me why. Well, okay. I was actually thinking about, you said the scene, the ending scene of Saving Private Ryan was very emotional to you. Yeah. So, do you think that that scene meant different things to different people? Well, you, you can't know how something is going to affect someone. Uh, people can be affected by something a hundred different ways. All you can do as an artist or a writer is to make a good guess and say, in order for this scene to work, the line has to be different, or I need to put the line over here, or I need to cut the line and say it this way. You can only guess. You can only imagine, you know. Uh, and, and ultimately, you are satisfying yourself. You're saying, this works for me, so hopefully it'll work for others. Now, with the first draft, you had said something previously. I said that I've never written uh, a perfect first draft. Well, there was also something you said in another And interview. you were supposed to say, Okay, but that's not that? what I'm actually going to say, though. So the, what I'm going to say but, is, is something about But I won't give genius. you the answer if uh -huh. you don't ask the question. How about I ask the question afterwards? You can ask let, it anytime you want. Let me ask the question about genius. You had talked about genius. I know what you're referring to. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. What is what am I? I talk about the accidents of genius. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, everyone has genius in them. They just don't know what it is. What they do know is their talent. And your talent will never produce anything great. It will only produce something that's good. Your genius is what is capable of creating something great. But because we rely on our talent, 
we often never get to our genius because talent is the obstacle to genius. It's when you don't know what you're doing sometime. It's when you are falling and you are, you're just at the mercy of the gods that your genius wakes up and says, this looks like a job for genius man. And genius comes through and you do something and it's amazing. And what do you think of the two things someone says when, whether it's a painting or a story or a poem or whatever, when they get something that's utterly amazing, what do you think of the two things they say to themselves? It's crap. No, they, they know it's great. Oh, I see. Okay. What do you think they say to themselves? I'm a genius, I'm amazing. No, that's not what they say. Okay. Have you ever had that experience where you did something and you go, oh, fuck. I thought it just a minute ago, yeah. yeah okay, and what, I guess what, do you, what do you say to yourself? I thought I was gonna ask a brilliant question and then I realized that it wasn't. No, you asked a different question. Sure. I wanted you to ask the question why. Okay. <laughs> That's all. I mean, um, I, I've done things where I thought it was amazing and it, and it didn't get that reception and then vice versa. But when you knew it was amazing, what was the first thing you said to yourself? Uh, that it's powerful. Yeah, but okay. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. My, I, in my I'm, elementary world, it's I'm gonna powerful, say it. I'm going to say it and you're going to go, oh, of course, <laughs> you're right. Okay. Uh-huh. You write something or you do something as an actor maybe in the middle of a scene and afterwards you go, oh my God, that was amazing. And then you say to yourself, where did that come from? Oh, okay, yes, I, that is happening. Because you don't know where right. it came from. Correct. All the other stuff you did, you know it came from your talent. You know that you know how to do that stuff. But this thing, you go, where did that come from? Then what's the next thing you ask yourself? How can I do that again? Exactly. Oh, yay, I got it right. How, okay. how can I do that again? <laughs> right. And the point is, there is no formula for that. Otherwise, people would be accessing their genius constantly. But they're not. They're, they're usually depending on their talent, which is understandable. That's okay. But talent will only get what's good. Genius will get what's great. But your talent is your biggest obstacle. And when you let go of your talent sometime and are willing to fail because you have no idea what you're doing, sometimes your genius comes to the rescue. And when it does, you do something and it shocks you. And your first thought is, how did I do that? And your second thought is, how can I do it again? Because you wanna do it again. But you can't make it happen. You can only be receptive to it happening. You can only be available for it happening. And how do you make yourself available and receptive? By getting rid of your talent. And if you think that's easy, you have another thought coming. Because you and your talent are in cahoots. You say to your talent, make me look good and I'll keep you on the payroll. And your talent says, keep me on the payroll and I'll make you look good. So the two of you got a deal going here. You're both going to make the artist look good. But that's not what you want. What you want is something great. 
and it's always unexpected and it's always an accident of your genius. And the accident happens when you're falling off a cliff and all of a sudden you fly. You wouldn't fly if you were on, on earth. You can't make it happen, but you're falling. You're in the unknown. You don't know what to do. And you've got to do something because the moment is presenting itself. And when it does, you write something or you do something with your paintbrush or something or sculpting. You put this here and you go, how did I do that? How can I do it again? So that's the, the relationship between genius and talent. And guess what? I went to a Chinese restaurant one night and I got a fortune cookie, cracked it open, and you know what it said? I've kept it all these years. It said, talent does what it can. Genius does what it must. Mm, I like that. And I went, that's it. Talent does what it can. It's limited. It, do it does what it can. But genius does what it has to do because you're in trouble. You're falling off a cliff. You've come to a point in your art where you have no idea what to do next. And you blunder into something and you go, fuck. Where'd that come from? How do I do that again? And is that where people get themselves in trouble? Is they think that they can duplicate that over and over again? Well, I don't know what, you know, gets themselves in trouble. I mean, look, uh, yeah, the whole idea of creating art is to get yourself in trouble as much as you can, but, and in acting too, my, my acting teacher always used to say, put yourself in danger. He said that, not, not, not get yourself in trouble. He said, put yourself in danger. What he meant was be in a place where your character is in danger and things will happen. Um, you know, none of us want to be in trouble. We do the best we can. And we will rely on our talent. The more talented you are, the more you will rely on your talent. The less talented you are, the more likely you are to have creative accidents because you have nothing to rely on. You have no idea what the hell you're doing. And sometimes, you know, the amateur, you know, wins at poker the first night because they, you don't know what you're doing. So that can happen. But if you're going to do it long enough, at some point you can't say I'm an amateur anymore. You have to say, look, I know what I'm doing. I have some talent. I know I'm going to rely on it sometime. But if I can once in a while get rid of my talent, my hopefully, my hopefully, because if your genius came up every time you got rid of your talent, then it would be simple. It's the accidents of your genius. And when it doesn't come up, what happens? You, you create shit. I'm a failure. Uh, not I'm a failure. I This failed right now. And that's how I get better, by failing. My attitude toward failure is, this doesn't define who I am. Just because I drop the ball when I'm juggling doesn't mean I'm not a good juggler. I can, I can be a good juggler. I just have to keep doing it. So how I interpret the failure is different from the willingness to have that happen when you take a risk. And most of the time when you take a risk, genius doesn't come. See, that's the, that's the point. It's an accident of your genius. It doesn't always come. But are you willing to lose a few times to get something great? 
Because when they give you the Nobel Prize, Karen, they are not going to take it away because someone went back to your home and rooted through your trash can and found that you wrote 100 poems that were shit. They're not going to take it away. That's, done that's that. what every artist does. They write, they write crap. They fail. It happens all the time. They're willing to take chances. So no one's going to take it away from you when you win the Nobel Prize. But you, you got to be willing to fail. And when you do... It may not end up being great, but you got to keep at it because when you're willing to face that unknown, when you put yourself in danger and not knowing where you're going and you risk failure, sometimes, sometimes the accident of your genius comes up. It's like a mushroom-shaped cloud. <laughs> so anyway, I... You know, I've said this to my students, and they're always surprised because everyone has this notion that sometimes you just write something and it's perfect as soon as you write it. It happens. Everyone assumes that happens, that everybody gets lucky sometime. And I said to them, I have never written something in a first draft that was perfect, that never had to have any changes. And what do they say to that? No, she'll say, why is that? Oh, that's right. Okay, sorry. Whose line is it? Um, why do they say that? No, why is that? Oh, sorry. Okay, let me try that again. <laughs> uh, why is that? This is funny. This is a, this is a funny joke. Uh, where you, okay. Um, let me try it. Sorry, let's, uh, why, why is that? Joke? Well, wait, no, let's, okay. a, a little digression here. Okay. So you're going to interview me, okay? Okay. Yeah. And uh, make sure you speak loud so they can hear you. Sure, sure. You have to say, I understand you're the world's greatest comedian. Jack, I, okay. Uh, Mr. Grapes, I understand that you are the world's greatest comedian? And I say, yes. Then you say, to what do you attribute your great success? Let me hear it. To what do you... Sorry, you're going to say yes or no? To what do you attribute... Right, but you're going to, to say great, yes? Yeah, uh, oh, yes. Okay. To what do you attribute your great success? Good. Let's just rehearse that okay, once. Okay, let's do it again. And then we'll do it for the camera, okay? Okay, okay. All right, uh, start. Okay. You are the world's greatest comedian, Mr. Grapes? No, it's I understand oh, okay. that you okay. are the world's right, greatest right, right. comedian. Okay. You got to get the lines okay. exactly right. Sure, sure. Mr. Grapes, Mr. Grapes, thank you for taking my question. Uh, Karen with Film Courage, I understand... You are the world's greatest comedian? Yes. Okay. To, to what do you attribute that success, sir? No. To what do you attribute your great success? Okay. To what do you, to what do you attribute your great success, sir? Great. Are you, are you ready to shoot it? Oh, I thought we already were. No, we, we, we're rehearsing right oh, now. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, sorry. No, I mean, I know he's running it, but right, this, right, okay. this is the joke. Okay, sure, sure. So um, have you got it down? Have you got your lines yeah, down? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I okay, will try. Okay. okay, go ahead. Um, Mr. Graves, thank you for taking my question. Karen with Film Courage. I understand you're the world's greatest comedian? Yes. To what do you... Timing. Okay. There you go. <laughs> did you get it? I do, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh-huh. So, um, um, I'm going to say, I've never written a first draft that was perfect, and you're going to say, why? Okay. Okay, and then I'll give you the answer. Sure. That I give my students. Okay. I've never written a first draft that was perfect. Why? Because I'm too good for that. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Oh, 
many See, different that's things. the thing, because uh -huh. they're not expecting that. They think that if you write a first draft, it means you're good. And I said, I never get a perfect first draft because I'm too good for that. That flips it on its head. They're going, too good? You mean if you're too good, all your first drafts are not good? I would think that if you're good, your first, some of your first drafts might be really good. But you're saying, I'm too good to have a perfect first draft. Hmm. Why do you think that would be? Oh, um, modesty? Nope, I just said, I'm too good for that. <laughs> okay. Um, delusion. What? Delusion. The, the what? Delusion. Delusional? No, no. no okay. okay. I, I, I wrote it, and okay. I go, this is not perfect, and I've never had a perfect first draft. I see. Um, I don't know. Because I can see where it can be improved. And the person who's not that good doesn't see where it can be improved. But I'm good. I'm too good to have a perfect first draft because I can see where it can be better. That's half the answer. The other half of the answer is, and I know how to make it better. Because sometimes you can go, mm, this first draft, it's not quite perfect. I know it needs to be fixed, but I don't know how. What I'm saying is, I'm too good for that. Because one, I can always see how anything can be made better. And two, I know how to do it. So that dispels that notion that a lot of people have, that if you really know what you're doing, you should be able to write that first draft and it's perfect. And I'm saying, well, no. Because if you're really good, you will always see how something can be made better. And you have the tools and the knowledge to make it better. You know how to do it. So again, that to me is a little paradox, which I kind of like. Because hopefully what I'm saying to my students is, don't, don't think that the first draft of anything you write is going to be perfect. Because if you are really good, you will see that it can be better. And if you know how to make it better, that's, 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 that's what you want. You want to be able to go, hmm, this thing is not perfect. But if I do this, 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 and this, it'll be perfect. And so at what point does someone know where the weaknesses are? At what point do they know where the weaknesses are? Or at what point do they get to where they go, well, it's not perfect, but I'm done? The latter. Um, there's a famous saying that poets never finish writing a poem. They only abandon it that at some point you might still feel, well, it's not perfect, but enough is enough. I gotta move on to my next one, you know? So um, maybe there's always gonna be a point where you think, well, this is as good as I can make it, and you, you go on. I mean, I don't think you can say to someone, uh, there's a point where you will always know where you can make it better. And I mean, you know, we're human beings. Sometime what we send out is imperfect, and sometimes we got to go, well, that's enough. You know, I got to move on to the next thing. This is not the best soup I ever made, but it'll do.
What is a transformational line? It's a sentence with I in it that you then massage to go deeper. Can we have an example? Yeah, say something with I in it. Okay. Um, I've been really thinking about my life. Okay, so about my life is what we call the birthday cake. Get rid of that. Okay. So now you're left with I've been really thinking. Okay. Okay. Now, what's the deeper truth? What's the, the answer to the question, what is the story of my life and what is the truth of who I am? The answer to that is I've been really thinking. Okay? So have you grokked that? What is the story of your life and what is the truth of who you are? I've been really thinking. Sure. Have you, have you got that? I've been really thinking. Okay. Now, don't forget, there's another concept. See, there's a lot of stuff that goes to demonstrate this. It's called the other side of the same coin. And the other side of the same coin is not the opposite. It's the same thing said from the other end. So if I say, uh, um, I'm always late for work, um, the other side of the coin would be I'm never early. If I say, I take my time when I go to work, the other side of the coin would be, well, I never take my time when I go to work. The other side of the coin would be, I always give. I never take, I always give. Same thing from the other side. So what is the other side of the coin to, uh, I've been really thinking? What's the other side of the same coin? I don't know. Well, let's look at the word thinking. What does thinking imply that you're not doing? I've been examining things. What? I've been examining things. No, that's the same idea. Okay. Uh -huh. What does it imply that you're not doing? If you're always thinking, what are you not doing? I'm not living. I'm not living. So, um, I've been thinking about something in my life. Get rid of something about my life. That's the birthday cake. I've been really thinking. Other side of the coin is I've not been really living. Okay. Okay? Okay. So say those two lines. I've not been really living. No, I've, I've, I've been, been really, really th thinking. I've not been really living. I've been really thinking. I've not been really living. And what's the deeper truth underneath that, Karen? Trying to think. The deeper truth that you've not been living. There's a deeper truth. Well, we've been in a pandemic. What? We've been in a pandemic. Now you're talking about something specific. Okay. And you're not giving an I. It's got to be an oh, I statement. Um, I've been dealing with the pandemic every day for the last year. So the fact that you've not been living, the deeper truth is not that it's a pandemic. It's about you. What's the deeper truth that you are not really living? I haven't been going out anywhere. Okay, I haven't been going out. That's mm -hmm. good. I'll take that. Okay, movie theaters. But are don't think about the pandemic because okay. then, then you're getting back to birthday cakes. Okay, okay. I don't want you to do birthday cakes. Uh -huh. It's the story of my life and the truth of who I am. Not about a pandemic. It's the truth of who you are. The truth of who you are is I've been really thinking. I've not been really living. Right. What's the deeper truth? I'm confused. 
I'm confused. Yeah. What's the deeper truth to the fact that Karen is confused? I found out some information that my life wasn't what I had been told it was. Say that again without, I found that information. I was told my life wasn't what it really was. Now get rid of I told myself and just make the statement. My life wasn't what it really was. Good. What's the deeper truth to that? Then who was I? Don't ask a question. Okay. It's got to be I. Okay. Make a statement. I didn't, I'm not who I thought I was. I'm not who I thought I was. Deeper truth. I'm confused. That was earlier. Okay. We're going deeper. Well, I'm. I'm no, as you said, I'm confused. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm not really who I thought I was. What's the deeper truth? How do we really know who we are? I don't. I don't ask a question. Oh, I don't know who I really am now. And the deeper truth to that, you don't know who you really are. Hmm. Hmm. Good. That's where I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Okay. And one more. What's the deeper truth to that you are stuck? In your life, and the truth of who you are is you are stuck. It's the deeper truth. Whew. Whew. That was it. Okay. There, there, there you are. Overwhelmed. Whew. No, no, oh. just whew. Okay. You were, you were down here. Right, right. When you went, whew, that was right here. Okay. That is where you are. Now, can you hold on to that and write your story? In other words, you massage the transformation line, which is an I statement. You take it deeper, 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 deeper as the answer to the question, what is the story of my life and the truth of who I am? And you get rid of the end of the sentence because we're not talking about the, the rest of the sentence. When you got to, I am stuck, and then I said, what's the deeper truth? You felt it before you said it. And that's why you went, whew, because now you are down there. I, you didn't even have to say the words. You got there. Now, can you hold on to that? And from that place of who, feel it, start to tell a story. Any story. Doesn't yeah. matter. If you start to tell the story from that place, Karen, your writing will be will change. Okay. So what story pops into your head about you being stuck? Um, you want the exact information? Just some information that I wasn't told about my past, my upbringing. Tell me about it. Well, you know, write it. You're writing it. I'm writing but don't, it. Don't you, just now when you went, well, you went up, stay down with who? Yeah. Stay down there. It's still pretty fresh. I found out about it accidentally. Uh, wasn't really probably supposed to find out. And I found out, and it made me... You're, you're, you're telling stories. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm chatting. I want who? When did it happen? Who? Uh, I want to know. When did that who happen? Maybe two months ago. Tell me. Tell me about it. Uh, just found out some information that was shocking. And really didn't know anymore. I. 
I didn't know who I was after I found that out. Keep going. And uh, I was angry that I wasn't told the truth. What was the truth you were told? <sighs> Probably don't want to say it because it involves family and they could be listening. Put yourself in danger. Well, I had to confront someone. Yeah. I had to confront somebody for covering things up and not keep being truthful. Okay. This is what people want will buy for, this is what people will pay for. They want that story. Yeah. And they want the scene. They want to know what the person looked like. They want to know what the dialogue was. They want to know where you were, what was the lighting light, what you know, what did the were there sounds. Make a movie of that scene. And and as Goethe said, be brave, be bold, and mighty forces will come to your aid. So when you massage your transformation line and you keep going deeper and deeper, you're going to get to that sentence where you're going to go, whew, and then you start writing in that voice. Don't go up to the chit-chat voice. Stay in that deep voice and write about it. Who was it? Where were you? What was happening, etc. Now, I know you don't want to go into it here, but that is what you would do as a writer, and that's what people pay for. They don't care what your smartness. That, that's not important. They want the guts because that's what they want. That's what they pay for. So you want them to buy your book. And look, you look at all the books that are bestsellers and that people have cherished. It's because characters have been in trouble. Characters have had a conflict. Characters had to discover things about themselves that they didn't want to look at. Something happened. They, you know, it, that's what makes drama. That's what makes literature. Clever tales are not going to sell. But the deep truth of your life will register with everybody. Because everyone will go, yeah, that happened to me too. Not exactly that way, but sort of. Hey, Joe, you got to read this. Brenda, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. You got to read this book. Because it suddenly becomes about human beings who are in conflict. And sometimes it has a happy ending where the character triumphs, learns to deal with it. And sometimes it has a tragic ending where the character is unable to deal with it. Right. You're feeling it right now, aren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm if you can write from that place, Karen, you will make art. Do you understand that? Yeah. About a transformation line? Now, if you can get to that deep place without the transformation line, great. That's just a technique I came up with. But if you but if you stumble onto an I statement about a birthday cake, when my brother came home, I was hiding the birthday cake. You get rid of the birthday cake and now you got I was hiding. What is this truth? What is the story of your life and the truth of who you are? I was hiding. Not about a birthday cake. I was hiding in my life. And then you massage it and it takes you deeper. Look how it brought you deeper. We should have the camera on you right now. Glad I don't have mascara. Your eyes are full of, te full of tears <laughs> and you, your, heart is, your heart is in your throat. Yeah. Now, right from that place. Don't go up. Stay there. 
and write. And the writing, write like you talk. Don't try to be a writer. Just tell the story and it will be magic. And you practice it. That's what I teach. People practice it. And at the end of the first class of the first seven classes, that becomes an important tool for them. <clears throat> what do you think? Yeah. Maybe give it more time before you write about it if it's something that's now. I've got a line for you to say to me, okay? okay. Say, that felt like therapy. That felt like therapy. But it's not therapy. It's about how to write something that people will buy. If you tell your therapist the story that you're not able to tell now, but that you would, and you would tell it to your therapist, the therapist isn't going to go, hmm. You know, if you start with the image of when you got in the car with your father and then do the part with the mother, it'll be a lot better. Th that's not what therapy's about. My class is about making art. Right. Writing something good. So you might read what you wrote and I would say, wow, that was amazing. But you, you know the part about the father? Why don't you open with that and then go to the thing about the mother? See, because we are dealing with this as a work of art. I'm not responding to you like a therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not here to get you to, you know, go through your feeling about being stuck. I'm here to use that as a conduit to get you to write in the deep voice because that voice is powerful. And when the reader hears it, when E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. That deep voice, you could be on the beach on a sunny afternoon and you're reading a novel about a man in a prison wearing an iron mask. The story will transport you, the reader, to someplace completely different. And every novel, every story, every poem does that. It's intimate. It connects to the reader. You are talking to the reader and nobody else. The reader feels like this is just for me. In a way, you don't say it literally, but you say to the reader, look, I have to tell you about something that happened to me. I thought I was fine, but then I realized and I got stuck and my life has not moved at all. Now, there are some things I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to tell anybody else. I'm only telling you in this book. And some of the people in this story... They don't know about it, but you will know about it, dear reader, because you and I have this bond and I'm speaking only to you. That's the illusion you create with art. So, yeah, getting to the deep voice might make you feel emotionally uh, concerned, but that's what it is to be an artist. An artist doesn't just create with the mind. The artist creates with their soul, with their being. And you have to, that's what you have to suffer. They don't care if the dancer's heels are bleeding. They just want the dancer to jump up in the air and stay there for a long time and then come down. They don't care if it was hard for them to do it. They paid $150 for these seats. That's what they want to see. And that's what your reader wants from you. They want blood. And you give it to them. 
You give it to them. And then your book becomes a bestseller and you buy an island in the Pacific and retire. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you see what I'm, what the point is I'm making here? Mm -hmm. You know, because uh, your stories are universal. They're everybody's story. But you felt the power of it, didn't you? I did, yeah. I'm not sure I'm ready to tell it, but... Well, in the class, you would. You'd mm -hmm. write it. Mm -hmm. And then in the class, you'd read it. Ooh. And you'd be trembly and you'd be, you'd, you'd feel like you're in danger. And then after you finish reading it, everybody would be moved and you'll go, hmm, I survived. I, I'm okay. I told my story, but I'm okay and they love the story. Okay. What Thanks else you want, Jack? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you'll be ready. <laughs> I bought this. I bought this in an airport. Oh, wow. Uh, they had one that said playwright, which I have here. They had another one that said author, and I bought that one. I don't know where it is. And then there was another one that said dog catcher. <laughs> and if I could find it, I'd wear it. <laughs> but I can't find that one either. So playwright will have to do Yeah, it. playwright, yeah. You know? I think playwright's way better than a dog yeah. catcher. Well, I don't know, you know. Uh, we, we actually uh, had a very stressful day yesterday because... Oh. In the middle of the night, someone deposited a dog in our front yard. Oh. And we have a little wall about that high that the puppy, oh. it wasn't a little puppy, it was, you know, but a puppy. It'll be a bigger dog. Uh, they just dumped. Mm. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, my wife went to get the paper, and she said, I need your help. We got this puppy. He's been moaning and groaning, and mm. he's scared and all, the whole thing. And so we took it in and we fed it and we were debating, do we keep it? Because we have a German Shepherd and the two of them weren't, the German Shepherd didn't, wasn't crazy about it. Uh, the German Shepherd's name is Penelope. And so we named the dog Homer. Awesome, you know. yeah. Um, and by the end of the day, we were exhausted. We, we realized the, the dog's not housebroken. We don't have time to walk it along with the other dog. It, it was a mess. So we finally decided we're going to have to find someone who will adopt the dog. But we love the dog so much, within that one day, we both bonded that where are we going to find someone who's going to take good care of it? That's tough, yep. And she went to the pet store where we bring our dog, and the trainer there, he, he saw a picture. We took a picture of the dog, and he looked at it, and he went, that's an Australian cattle dog. They're very expensive. And my wife said, would you like it? Would you like to take it? Because we can't handle it. He said, I've been looking for an Australian cattle dog that, you know, I've been looking for it. He was so thrilled. And he's, he's a trainer. Oh. And, and he and his wife came over last night. And they bonded. And the dog is okay. But at the end of the day, I said to my wife, I'm wiped out. Yeah, we've had, that's how we had a cat for like 16, 17 years. Just yeah. showed up at the door, stressed, crying, right. and probably someone dumped it. And um, I know. Yeah, it's, our it's, first uh, cat was like that. Yeah, she was under a house, scared to death. Um, you know, and that cat, Cleo, when she she died, um, she had been attacked by a dog, and we oh. brought her to the vet, and her wounds were pretty bad. And the vet said, "I'm afraid she's probably not going to live very long." And he said, do you want to leave her here with us? And I said, no, no, we're going to take her home and she will, um, if she passes away, it'll be here 
in our house. So we took her home, and he said, but, you know, if she is going to survive, you have to give her this eyedropper in her mouth every hour. So I laid on the floor next to her, and every hour, I didn't sleep that night, every hour I gave her a little bit of this medicine. And at some point, and then I would fall asleep, and then I'd wake up and give her some more. And at one point, about four in the morning, I think it was, when I went to feel her, I could feel the body had rigor mortis had set in. Oh. It's that stiffness. And yeah. I went, she's, she's dead. And I just stayed with her. And then about 6.30, my wife walked in and she said, how's Cleo? And I said, she died. And I started crying. I've never, I, I don't think I've cried that hard since I broke up with somebody when I was a senior in high school. Oh. I started crying so heavy, and then I realized what it was. I was crying for my father. Oh. Because I never grieved for my father, because it's a long story, but I kind of skipped over the grief part. And I real, and this is like 30 years later, here I am crying, and I went, I'm crying for my father. And just, man, it just came out. And, uh, and you know, we put her in a box and we we buried her and so forth or had her buried that kind of thing but boy animals they can really rip your heart out yeah they can and i've rescued mm. a lot of cats or we have and yeah um you know they 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 appreciate it i don't think i've ever i've only purchased them from rescues i've never purchased a, a purebred or anything yeah yeah we've always yeah. rescued our pets yeah, chucky sense. who we had to put a she had cancer we had to put her down she used to come up on my he used to come up on my desk when I was working, and she would plop right down on my checkbook. And rather than move her, I would you know, try to write the checks and put them in the envelopes without disturbing uh, him. Oh, you yeah. Know? We know all about it. Yeah. That's our daily. Right, right. <laughs> Animals, man, they're yeah, something. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful, though. Anyway, do you have a uh, yeah, question, um, right? Yeah, let me, okay. Um, you have a concept you teach called image moment. Oh, it's very complicated. Okay, and uh, it's an approach it's a to cinematic, show, don't tell. It's a cinematic construct in writing that most people don't do because it's not intuitive, something you have to learn to do. But it takes a moment in a dramatic scene and how to m create psychological time um, so that the reader is in that dramatic moment as if it was a movie. Like when you're in a movie and someone says something and then there's a pause and then say something else and it's like, wow, one of those great moments, you know. Oh, Rhett, what will I do? Where will I go? Pause. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. You know, so when you're writing it, you're not making the movie, you're writing it. How do you create that pause and that moment of drama um, so that the reader feels they're watching the movie? And that they're in the movie, you know, they're watching it. You, and you create psychological time. The psychological time is the pause. The pause might only last a second in the movie, but psychologically it could last forever. So the husband comes home and she says, I listened to your messages today. He went, oh? She said, are you having an affair? Pause, pause, pause. Uh, no. So the drama in that pause, how do you make that psychological, that real time, which is only two seconds, 
psychological so that it feels forever. Well, there's a way to, now I have a lot of techniques that you do and what you do. It's a long, it's a long mechanical construct, but uh, image moment because you're creating a moment using images and creating psychological time. Uh, it takes people a while to learn how to master it because most people want to just tell their story and stopping and doing an image moment feels like they're not going with the flow of their story. So you, you have to train people to do that. <clears throat> do you think that's what's missing in a lot of, let's say, first-time screenplays or films is that psychological time, that pacing? It's well, too fast? a or? screenplay can't create psychological time. The filmmaker can create it. All you can create in a screenplay is dialogue. You can't tell the actors to pause. You can write it in the screenplay, but it doesn't mean they're going to listen to you. Uh, you you can say cinematic pause here. Well, the director may go, no, we're going to do it my way. So you're not you're not in control. All you can control is the dialogue, and even then, you'll have an actor who will rewrite your line. But you can create a cinematic moment in prose, where you create what appears to be like a movie, and um, you can learn how to do it. And once you learn how to do it. Uh, uh, and get over all your impulses to not do it because it's a technique. You really, it's a tech, just like in movie making. You have to know which lens to use and, you know, when to go in for a close up. And then it goes to the editor's room and then they have to edit it. That, that's technical. That's very technical. And the job of the editor who's editing it is to make the scene on the screen not look technical. He's got to make it work. So you go, wow, Major Strauss has been shot. Pause. Round up the usual suspects, the end of Casablanca. So the editor cuts it in such a way that you, as a moviegoer, feel the psychological time. So the image moment technique I teach is technical. It's very technical. And when people learn to do it and they finally get it, they're always amazed at how it works. And then, happens without fail, they'll say, I was reading a book the other day and there were like five image moments on every page. Because good writers know how to do it. But it's not intuitive. It's not something you intuitively will know how to do. Oh, I'm sorry. I was That's just okay. trying to put this. It's so hard oh, to put no it worries. back. No One of the flaws in the design that I never quite really cool. made perfect. That's really cool. Um, writing that'll live forever versus writing that's a dead end. You've made that comparison with poetry, I believe. Writing Wait, in general. Say that again. Sure. Writing that'll live forever versus writing that's a dead end. Versus writing that's a dead end. Is it? Is that, what is your question? That's the question. Let me try it again. So, writing, so in other words, uh -huh. some writing lives forever and some writing doesn't. I think you said that about poetry. And you said sometimes writers uh, attempt to go for writing that'll live forever, but really what they're doing is it's a dead end. How does a writer know that? It doesn't have to be poetry or um, prose. Screenwriting. 
I I don't know if I have a wise answer to that. Oh. Some some sometimes you 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 don't know. Um, you know some some of the things you do you might think aren't going to be especially uh, relevant or memorable, and for some reason uh, it lives for a long time. And other things that you think are the best thing you ever did ends up being forgotten. So it's kind of hard to know. It's kind of like sure. a crapshoot. You, you do the best work you can and you hope for the best. Creativity is a process, not a... Prescription for product. Okay. Yeah, I don't say, you know, here's the finished product. Let's work to make the product. And a product has this, it has that, it has this, it has that. That's what most writing classes do. Uh, matter of fact, that's what most literary criticism in the 19th century did. And in the 20th century, literary criticism even shifted to what are, what are the techniques or the devices that the author used, not what is his life about and the Freudian implications and the social milieu of the time, but what are the devices that the artist used to make that product? Well, I kind of go further back and go, the devices are something that we write in, in the process toward product, but we don't aim for the finished product. We don't know where we're gonna go. The creative work is about the process, working on the concepts, the exercises, not on a prescription for a finished product. So the concepts I teach in method writing are not the end product. They are the process impulse. So all the concepts I teach, not just in level one and two that we kind of talked about, but in level three, four, and five, and then the levels beyond. I have a whole bunch of levels. Um, it's, it's about the process. I'm always wanting the artist to honor the process, the way you work, not what you're aiming for, but just let the truth of the impulse of your process find its way. And then when you finally get your novel or your story or your poem, you won't have headed there. And my analogy in sports is in golf, you don't aim, you don't aim to get the ball in the hole. You hit the ball correctly. You get the right club and you swing correctly. And if you do that, it'll go where it's supposed to go. But you don't aim to put it in the hole. So you, you go through your process and let the end result take care of itself. So that's what I mean when I say the creativity is about the process. Matter of fact, isn't that the term they use? They say the creative process. So if you come from the process, the product will emerge and it will always surprise you. It will be unexpected. You didn't expect to be stuck. We started out with, um, uh, I'm really thinking about da-da-da. And by the time we got through going through some of the techniques of the other side of the coin and, and other things I didn't bring up, you end up being stuck in writing about that subject that you didn't expect to write about. So that's what I mean by it's not a prescription for product. It's a, it's a process. 
Do you make sense? It does. Do you see a lot of writers that come in with the product mindset? Everybody. Every you think everybody starts out that sure, way? Sure, we're all human. We all have, you know, ideas, things we want to do. Um, most people have some kind of idea what they want to write about, and they're always surprised that um, in some way they did do it, but they took a route they didn't expect. And if they had gone straight for it, it wouldn't have been what it ended up being. And that the, you know, the unexpected path there was what makes it interesting, not where they got. Why is it important to outline the story before you start writing it? It's not important. I would never suggest anybody do that. That's exactly what I just finished talking about. That's where you're, you're looking at your product and, and you know, fitting your feet into the shoes of the right size, and you're not in any creative process at all. I would never tell anybody to outline your story, except there's two exceptions. You would make an outline of your story if you're being paid. And this is the other component, because if you're just being paid and this other component isn't there, then it doesn't apply. You're being paid and there's a deadline tomorrow or at the end of the week. Well, okay, they're paying me. They want me to write a story about ballistic missiles. Okay, I'll do the best I can with my talent. I'll outline what I need to do, blah, blah, blah. I'll get it done in a week and I'll make $5,000. But if they're not paying me and there's no deadline, why would I go with an outline for the product when the creative process is much richer and holds so many unexpected marvels? That's what I want to bet on. I want to bet on that horse, the unexpected marvel that will come from the unknown and the unexpected of the creative process. Why would I do, if no one's paying me and there's no deadline, why would I purposefully sabotage my genius, which doesn't come out all the time anyway, if ever? I'm not going to make an outline because then I'm bound by the outline. So you don't need to know where you're going when, you, when you're writing a story? It's not about needing to know. You are better off if you don't know. If you know, you're probably going to be in trouble. It's like love. I'm not going to fill that blank Tell in, me. I want to hear it. <laughs> if you have a card, uh -huh. and every time with your date you keep looking at the card, oh, I say something funny, okay? You know, it's, it's got a list of things you should do that will make your date want you. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. You have to be in the moment, and you have to just be there. Be in the moment. See what happens. Love always happens when you don't expect it to happen, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, so you don't think blind dates work? You what? You don't think blind dates work? If they're kept blind, if you are open. As a matter of fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying blind dates can work. Mm -hmm. Listen to the stories that people tell of how they met. You know, people who've been together for three, four, five years at least. I'll say, you know, I never expected it. He was my uncle's uh, a neighbor, and it was a wedding, and he was there, and, and he's not anything like the person I thought I would fall in love with. 
I thought it was going to be this, this, and that. And I don't know, just something happened. And the next thing you know, we got five kids. You, you can't, um, oh, there's a, is it the Supreme? You can't something about love. What is it? It's you can't a hurry love? Can't what? You can't hurry love? You can't you just hurry have love. To you win. can't hurry yeah. love, okay. yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, you don't want me to sing. Yeah. <laughs> no. no, you don't want me to sing it. <laughs> you, I would be happy to hear you okay, sing it. Okay, all right. But people, we can, we can put a link to the video for the song. Yeah, no, you know, if something is going to be written, it's going to be written. Don't be afraid. Yeah, you got that story about you, when you went fishing with your father. It'll, it'll come through. Don't, don't worry about it. Go with the unknown. And it'll come in when you least expect it. But go with the unknown. That's the creative process. Unless someone's paying you right. and there's a deadline, well, you know, you're, you're not, you're not sh stupid. Someone's going to give me money to write about ballistic missiles. Okay, I'll do it. But otherwise, I'm going to go with the unknown. So what about the people that say you must have a roadmap for where you're going? If not, your story will not turn out. And I got a uranium mine that you must invest in. Uh, it's somewhere out in Nevada. You give me $10,000 of your hard-earned money and I'll make you a million. What, what would you say to that? Can I go visit the mine? I would say... Well, you take me on a tour. I would shut the door. <laughs> so same is true for the story. You, I don't worry about it. It'll come through. And anyone who says you must know your story, you must, if you want to put your money in a uranium mine, that's, that's your business. But, you know, it's not what I teach. So I'm not saying my way is the only way, but it's what I teach. What is the invisible motor? The idea that a work of art is a mechanical thing, um, that's an analogy I use, but I discovered it goes all the way back to the Russian formalists who looked at the form rather than the content. In other words, not the story, but the devices you use to make the story come alive. And they felt that a work of art was like a machine. And it, and it worked, as I said. Uh, and one of the analogies this guy used, a man named Viktor Shlovsky, he said it was like a car. And uh, he said some other things, but uh, I go a slightly, slightly different direction. Uh, there's three things with the car. There's the engine, there's the inner structure and decor, and there's what the car looks like on the outside. What the car looks like on the outside is your story. That's your story. A lot of people write their stories and there's no engine and there's nothing inside. It's like a fake set on a movie's, you know, a movie's lot. That's the outer trappings of it. But to me, the motor that's under the hood, that's the invisible motor that powers a poem or a story. And when you work on your story or whatever you're going to be writing, the techniques that I teach are the mechanics of that invisible motor that powers your story. So that's what I mean when I say the invisible motor. And most 
writing classes don't really go to the invisible motor. They go with the design of the car, the story, how it looks on the outside. But they don't really get into writing. I want to make people better writers, not better plotters. When you're on a plane and someone says to you, what do you do? You don't say, oh, I'm a plotter. I want you to be, you know, the one who makes the story go because of the engine. If I got in a car, the most beautiful car in the world, turn on the key, it doesn't work. I don't want the car. It's got to go. What makes the car go? The devices that we learn how to write in an authentic voice, then learn how to use the other four voices. Then I have other levels where I teach other devices. But these are devices that actually facilitate the creative unknown. And what's the oil in that engine? What if I'm low on oil and now these gears and these different parts are going to start grinding and pretty soon the car is going to stop working? That's what a is good, good question. No one's ever asked me that. What's the oil? Whether it's synthetic, vegetable, whatever I'm running on, what, what is that oil that's keeping this story? Your emotional truth. That's the oil. If it's not coming out of here, it's not worth it. It's okay. just imagination, which is good up to a point, but it has to have an emotional truth. What's the emotional truth? So that's the oil. Okay. Look at the oil you had a little while ago. That's true. I mean, that was a lot of oil, kiddo. It was. It was an oil spill. And <laughs> if you can hold on to that oil, uh -huh. not just for the story you would write about being stuck, but other experiences you might write about that that same oil applies, now your story is going to be compelling for the reader. Right. You don't need an outline. You don't need a plot. You don't need that. If you don't have the deep voice and you don't have the oil of some of the other techniques, the emotional truth, you're just, you're doing what, uh, uh, when Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road and he showed it to Truman Capote, it was, he wrote it on butcher paper, you know, rolls of butcher paper, which he just stuck in the typewriter. Uh, Truman Capote said, that's not writing, that's typing. Now he was wrong. But that's a good analogy. And if you don't have the emotional truth, it's just typing. It's not writing. Okay. So, the way you're nodding your head. Yeah. And, but you I, was, I was actually the, thinking of the movie Kill Your Darlings, which I did a show. Part, part of it had Jack Harris. So I was trying to picture what he was going through, I believe. He was that his character was in the film, so that's where I went to. I was right. thinking of. Right. Um, did he go to France and people think he was homeless, or am I getting now, him mixed now who up? Who are you talking about? Jack Kerouac. Am I getting him mixed up with someone else? Where he went to France and he became very disillusioned because people thought he was homeless. No. No, I'm thinking of someone. No, else. No, he lived then. with his mother. Okay, <laughs> wrong person. All his stories about him being on the road. Uh huh. He went on the road a few times. He basically lived with his mother. <laughs> and 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 typed and typed okay. but he drew on his experiences he, he was a great writer and he drew on his experiences and boy you read on the road and man that that book is the the, the poetry in it comes from the emotion of his deep voice just every once in a while i read the last paragraph of on the road 
You just read that last two or three paragraphs, the last page. Man, it's great. And I just read it, and it sometimes helps me find my voice. <clears throat> Try it sometime. What's the, do you remember what exactly the paragraph is? Not word for word, but... Uh, I, I can't quote it. Okay. You, you'd have to read it. If I had it here, I could read it, but... Okay. Uh, um, Fair enough, yeah. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. You know, it's like a piece of music. Sometime I, I will read a paragraph or a page out of a book that I know the way I would put some music on because I know it somehow gets me in the mood or it touches me in a certain way. So same with writing. I'll, I'll read something and it just... I'll read the end of Ulysses with Molly Bloom's speech where, you know, they're on this bluff and he's been trying to get her to make love to him and finally she thinks, oh, what the hell? As him as anyone else, what the hell? And then she asked him to ask her again and he asked her and she said, yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. I'll read those last words in Ulysses and man, it just, I hear the rhythm of that voice and it just really connects me. There's a lot of books, things that I'll go and read. I'll read the opening of Dante's Inferno. Midway through the journey of my life, I found myself lost in a dark wood. I found myself lost in a dark wood. How do you find yourself by getting lost? I, midway through the journey of my life, I found myself. Now, <clears throat> literally, it means I, I suddenly I was there. You know, I, I found myself at, at the east uh, gate. I found myself in the back room. You know? But if you think of it literally, midway through the journey of my life, I found myself lost. In, that's how I found myself, by being lost in a dark wood, you know, in the dark truth of your soul and and of being stuck and where you went when you went to the deep voice. That's your potent place. That's the oil that will make your engine run. And if the engine is put together right and you've got these techniques that you know how to use, Indy 500, winner. Is that why you love writing poetry, the rhythm of the writing, the rhythm of the words? Well, the rhythm is the rhythm of the voice. I mean, that's the rhythm of the, the deep voice speaking to someone else in a very intimate way and connecting with him, you know. Um, I, I, I talked about my, um, my dog, Jessie, who um, she had cancer and we had to put her down. Um, it's in one of my books. I, I, like, I like different sizes. I like, when I'm doing a book, I like to think, what size do I want it to be? Like Lucky Finds with all the cards. Now, most, most of my books are going to be, you know, the normal size of a book. But once in a while, I, I'm, I'm curious. So, like, I did a book of haiku. Oh, yeah. And I wanted it to be a flip book. So I, I, I thought it would be about that thick. And it would be 50 haiku. But it ended up, I wrote 300 haiku. And I wrote a introduction that was uh, close to 450 pages. Oh. So it's got a 450-page introduction, <laughs> and then it's got 301 haiku. And the introduction is, um, what does it say here? It says, um, 
in 201 chapters and 601 paragraphs. So the, the little book I was going to do ended up being like that, and it, it kind of grew. So I, I, I kind of like different things. Uh, this book uh, is a smaller book, too, and um, it, it has a, I think of it as a circus. The poems are all different, and I have a Chagall painting in the front, and on the back it's got a Rumi quote, with passion pray, with passion make love, with passion eat and drink and dance and play. Why look like a dead fish in the ocean of God, Rumi. So I have a poem in here that is about uh, my dog, Jesse. This is not an earth-shattering poem. It's just about my dog, Jesse, who uh, we had to put down. Um, Jesse, my dog. I was driving back from a music recital this evening and found myself cruising down a street I used to frequent 30 years ago, but haven't driven down since. So many of the places I used to go to are gone. A favorite Italian restaurant, now a fitness center. A bookstore, now an antique store. A cafe where I read most of 100 years of solitude, now an ice cream parlor. It isn't as if I was planning to go to any of those places, but it makes me sad to know they're gone. It doesn't really matter. I'm 72 years old. A lot is gone. It's all going to go eventually. By the cafe, a boy was walking his dog along the sidewalk. One day the boy will be gone along with his dog. My dog's gone. Jesse used to lie by my feet as I sat at the computer trying to write a poem. She's gone now. No more Jesse. After I'd written the poem, I'd take Jesse out for her midnight walk. Sometimes we'd pass a house and the people inside might still be up, sitting at the table, talking and drinking. But mostly the streets were quiet and she and I would enjoy the night air, the way the leaves rustled when a wind came up from the ocean. Maybe a poem would be buried in someone's front yard and Jesse would dig it up and bring it to me, like a bone she'd just found. That poem about the man in charge of watering, Jesse dug that one up. She just dug it up and brought it to me. What you got there, girl? She dropped it on the sidewalk, then trotted off, looking for more poems, more bones. No more bones now. And few poems to be dug up except this one which is torn at the edges, and I've stopped caring about the line breaks or the metaphors or even the kind of things a poet is supposed to do when writing a poem, making everything ship shape. No more bones. No more ship shape. I'm not even sure you are reading this poem right now. Maybe no one is reading it. Like I said earlier, it doesn't matter, you know? I write the poems anyway. Jesse will come back some night take my poems on our walk and bury them in someone's front yard. And all I'll have to do in my remaining years is walk my weary bones down the sidewalk and dig them up. Dig up those poems that Jesse buried. My good girl, talk. Taking such good care of me then and now. Jesse won't be with me, but I'll thank her. Give her a good rub on the back, then I'll let her go.
So that's about my dog, mm, Jesse. That's beautiful. So it's not so much rhythm as the voice, you know. Sometimes there are rhythmic things you can do, and that's part of your technique. So it depends. If I'm doing to be read and sung, you know, the repetition, then I would do that, you know. It's also about loss and change, you know. You, you talked that, about walking down the street and the, this restaurant isn't here anymore and this bookstore has changed. Well, it's about, I'm 70, I wrote that when I was 72. I'm 78 now. Mm -hmm. So I wrote that six years ago. It's about thinking, you know, as I said, my dad died when he was 54 and I, I, I was I, I always thought I would live longer than he did. So, you know, when I wrote the poem, I was 72 and you know, I'm f feeling older, your bones, your body, you don't, you know, I can't dunk anymore. <laughs> you know, I can't throw a football 70 yards. Uh, and so you also think of what you can't do as an artist, that you're getting older and uh, things are going to be gone. You're going to lose things. Friends will die and loved ones will leave. And I was just thinking about that and feeling all that, uh, and that Jessie was gone, but uh, I thought of how she would bury my poems and then dig them up, which is a metaphor, of course, um, and that eventually I'd pet her and let her go, that at some point the poems don't come anymore, and the muse that brings you the poems, whether it's your dog or the muse or whatever, that will end too, and you have to let it go. You have to give them a pet and let it go. Whether it's a poem or a lover, a loved one, friend, whatever. What do you mean by the muse won't come anymore? Well, the muse, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the muse, but I'm just using that cliche that, you know, poets sit and write and the muse comes and gives you the poem. I don't believe that. I believe that you, the muse is in you. But I just use that cliche as kind of the idea that you'll be sitting at your desk and nothing will come to you anymore. You know, the muses will say, you know, we, we got to work with this guy in Chicago. He's just 20 years old. He's just starting out. Uh, you know, take care of yourself, Jack. So I, I use that cliche that the, the muse won't come anymore. You, 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 you won't have it. What, an athlete can lose it. A writer can lose it. You never know. But can you lose it for a while and get it back? I know the, the writer's block, but is that really that the muse won't come anymore? Well, I, look, we're getting into technicalities here. I don't believe in writer's block, okay? I can write a sentence. Hemingway once said, uh, when he had writer's block, he said, he would write this down. You've done this before. You can do it again. All you have to do is write one true sentence. He didn't mean true factually. He meant a sentence that was authentically spoken and real and not trying to be a writer and not trying to gussy it up, just saying the simplest thing you could say. You've done this before. You can do it again. All you have to do is write one true line. Well, I don't have writer's block. You know why? Because here's what I write. I got up this morning at 7 o'clock. I don't feel like writing today. I don't have anything to write about. It looks like it's going to rain, and later 
I have to go to Ralph's to get a chicken. Blah, 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 blah. I don't know what I'm going to write about, but I don't care. I'm just, I'm going to write. Well, I don't feel like writing. I have nothing to write about. I feel like I have writer's block, but of course I never have writer's block. I don't know what it is, a big wooden thing inside my head. I mean, just write. You don't have to have a story. You don't have to have an idea. Just connect with that moment, and maybe you'll write crap, but you'll write. I don't believe in writer's block. I don't believe in the muse and inspiration and all of that stuff. I believe in the mechanics of art. I believe if you know how to hit a, a, a golf ball and you know how to hit sh shoot a basketball and you've practiced it a thousand times, then even if you're not in the mood, you can pick up the damn ball and shoot a hoop. I can pick up the damn club and hit the ball. Maybe I can only hit it 10 feet because my bones are old and I'm tired, but I can do it. I don't have to have, I need to be inspired to play golf today. Imagine if a professional athlete said, I only play when, when I'm inspired. You know, there goes that million dollar contract. Why do people call themselves blocked writers? I don't know, I'm not a, their therapist. They're operating under an illusion. They're not very professional. Yeah, if I get an injury, I don't go and play that day. But if I'm not injured, I play. I don't feel like it, but I play. Because I got to play according to the schedule. So I can get up and write. I've done it before. I can do it again. All I have to do is write one true line. I got up this morning at 7 o'clock. I don't feel like writing today. As a matter of fact, I have nothing to write about. It looks like it's going to rain. And later, I've got to go to Ralph's to get a chicken. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's not magic. Do you think people romanticize being a blocked writer? Makes them more tragic? Makes them... Maybe. Get some sympathy? Maybe. But if they write about it, that would be good. There you go. See, if you write about it, you know, I feel blocked today. All right. Write about it. I just think, you know, if, if you can physically hold the pencil or type at your keyboard, you can write something. But what happens is when you think of your product and your outline, how am I going to get from point A to B in my outline? Oh, I, where am I going to start? And what happens when the door closes and, oh, God, I have writer's block. I don't worry about that. We don't care about plot. We care about the human being in the story. Yeah, the human being is what matters. If the reader doesn't care about the human being, they could care less about the plot. Everybody tries to come up with plot. I mean, plot's important. And I could do a whole lecture on the difference between plot and story. There is a difference. Story is the chronological sequence of the events. A plot is how you arrange the sequences. And sometimes you don't always start at the beginning and go to the end. Sometimes you start at the end, and then you go to the beginning, and then you go to the middle. Uh, you know, then you have a flashback. I mean, plot is, is, is much different than story. But um, when you're writing a story or your plot, if the, human, if the protagonist 
whether it's first person or third person, if the reader doesn't care about that character, why would they care about the plot? They, they care about a character. And then they want to see what's going to happen to the character. And that's the story. So character is most important. Every writer will tell you that. It's, a, it's almost a cliche. Grab any writer, any published writer off the street and say, what's the most important thing? And they'll go character. Now, once you've got your character, your character will lead you to your story and to your plot. Even if you've already got it made up and figured out and outlined it, characters change their mind. Characters don't always do what you want them to do. They will tell you what they want to do and what they want to say. And all of a sudden, your character leaves for, for Tierra del Fuego. And I didn't plan on that. But now they're on a ship going to Tierra del Fuego. And they're meeting a, a, a tall, dark woman with a long cigarette holder and a cigarette that has a long ash. Whoa, where do I go with that? You don't know. It's accidental. So once you've got character, then the character will create your plot. And where does character come from? Character comes from the voice. If you're in the deep voice and the character is narrating from the deep voice or the third person narrator is in the deep voice, that creates compelling character. So voice creates character, character creates plot. And it can be no other way, right? Can't reverse. I would never say it can't be any other way. Okay. What I'm saying is that in general, um, if your story does not have a character that people relate to, your story isn't going to be enough. And the way you get people to relate to a character is through the authentic voice. They hear that intimate voice and suddenly that character is real and is alive. But I'm not going to say it's the only way. It's the way I think it should be because that will succeed for you. Like I said, I don't think there's a writer out there that will tell you character doesn't matter. They're going to tell you character matters. What are the steps to developing and building a character? I actually teach a class in that. Uh, well, one, establishing the voice. How does that character talk? Um, how do they see the world? What is their attitude toward the world? And then you've got to collect a lot of details that I have my students make a character checklist. Not for any one character, but for any character. And you should be keeping this checklist um, for the rest of your life. Anytime you see something that looks interesting about a character, or you think about it, or you see it in a movie, or you read it in a book, make a note of it. And then when you start developing a character, riffle through your, your checklist and see what you got that's kind of interesting. Um, so you want to find things that make the character compelling because of little, little things. What do they keep in their refrigerator? How do they wear their clothes? How do they eat eggs? How do they eat sunny side up eggs? So you should be paying attention. You know, a lot of writers, they, they don't pay attention. They've been to a coffee shop or cafe a hundred times and they've never really looked at how people eat. If you look at how people eat, everybody eats a particular way. 
the way they hold the fork, the way they cut their food. Um, sunny side up eggs. You should watch 10 different people eat sunny side up eggs and every one of them will do it differently. I saw one guy, he cut the white, put it on the fork, dipped it into the yolk, okay, and eat it. And the yolk would come up white. So he, would, he kind of kept doing that. I saw another guy eat the white without touching the yolk. Never touched the yolk until all he had was the yolk in the center of the plate. And then he took his fork and he slid it under the yolk, picked it up, and I tell you, I get the, I mean, to me, there's, ugh, I couldn't do that. Gets his fork under the yolk and the whole thing, like he'd been waiting the whole meal to get to that yolk. Now, to me, yolk creeps me out. I've got to mix it up. Um, when I was a kid, <clears throat> um, my dad would have to cut it all up for me because I, I didn't even want to dip it in the, I wanted it all cut in little pieces and all mixed together. It would be a scrambled sunny side up egg and I would eat it that way, dipping my toast into it. Uh, if you look at people eat their food, you'll find a lot. So you could do a checklist on hundreds of little things about people. What does their refrigerator look like? Everybody's refrigerator is, looks differently. And when I go visit a friend, or anybody's house, even if it's a stranger, you know, someone says, oh, let's go over to my friend's house or something. I look at their refrigerator and I look at their medicine cabinet. Oh. And I, and I look at their books. Oh, interesting. I can tell more about a person by their medicine cabinet, their refrigerator, and the books they have than anything else. Whatever they are acting like, I know, I know about them by that. Now, as a writer, I'm going to make notes of things I find interesting so that I'll use that in a, in a book for a character. You know, people who have 10-day-old milk in the back or, or <laughs> they have lots of uh, Tupperware and everything is in there and it's, going, it's already moldy. You know, <laughs> how do people arrange their refrigerator? Some are, are you know, obsessive-compulsive. They've got everything neat and perfect. So same with the medicine cabinet. Boy. Medicine Tell cabinet tells you everything. Oh, like what? You know, somebody's got a tube of cream that's been blech and the cream hasn't been used in about a year. But they've <laughs> kept it because who knows, that rash may come back. And you can see the top, the cream that was squished out of the top is now brown. And it's been, <laughs> you know, they didn't even press it neatly or something. One guy's got his toothpaste and he rolls it as he goes. Another person is squishing it here and there and it's a mess. So there's all sorts of little eccentricities that you can find in a medicine chest. Make a note of them and keep it on your checklist because one day you'll be writing a story and you'll have a minor character and you'll have an opportunity to mention something in their medicine chest that will be interesting. What about books? What does that tell you about well, someone? Well, I always look at books, see what people are reading. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you, you never know what people read. And, and you always, you'll find anomalies too. You'll, you'll find all their books are about one subject, and then they got one book on Aristotle. And you go, hmm, what are they reading Aristotle for? But then they'll have another book on how to make a million dollars in the stock market. Or, or something, you know, you just, oh, this person's got one of their books that they must have read in first grade, and they've, Jimmy Potts gets a haircut. 
and you open it and it's got little illustrations in it and it's a story about a kid who gets a haircut and the barber made a bad cut and some woman thinks he was hit by a truck. It's, you know, it's a story for like a third grader and he still got it. I wonder why. Gee, I'll use that in the novel one day. So you make notes of things that you think are, are interesting and you put it on your checklist and you have hundreds of things on your checklist, all sorts of things, uh, just their emotional truth, I mean, just their anything. And then when you start writing a short story and you got a character, you think, all right, what have I got on my checklist? Maybe I can use some of this stuff. You know, the way they clean their glasses, the way they wear their glasses. Um, the inside of their car. Well, that's another thing like a medicine chest. The inside of the car. I mean, I knew one guy, every time I'd get in his car, I'd say, why don't you grab a shovel and dust up? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was that, you know, it looked like, uh, what do you call it, the junkyard. Or the ones with the serial killer clean, where you're like, whoa, this thing's been... You get in a car that's <laughs> absolutely pristine. And you yeah, go, wow. a little freaky. Wow, I, I don't know. I think I admire this person. Oh, okay. They really worked hard. <laughs> I'll have a penny on the mat, on the, you know, not the driver's seat, but over there. It's been down there for like months, and I just don't feel like picking it up. And I kind of got used to being it down there. I figure, I'm not going to pick it up. Let's see if someone else picks it up. And if someone else does pick it up, I'll go, oh, okay. Character, interesting. Some people won't let sleeping dogs lie, and some people won't let lying pennies sit. So, oh, you know, you, you find out little, little things that, that are interesting. Um, I read a, a, a detective novel a few years ago, a few years ago, 30, 40 years ago. And it was about a, a character who's a main character in all his detective novels, who is a detective and a, a crooked sheriff in a small town in Florida throws him in jail for something. So he's in jail for like two days and he's just trying to keep his sanity and figure out who did the murder. But in order to keep himself occupied, he thinks of things. And one of the things he thinks about, and it's a two-page essay, uh, you're not old enough to remember this, but when I was a kid and you had skates, nowadays skates are attached to shoes. You just put your, your foot in the shoe that's got the, the roller skates attached to it. But when I was a boy, you had the metal skates that had little clamps on it and it hooked to your shoes, not tennis shoes. You had to have shoes that had, you know, rims on them that you could hook it on. And then the way you would tighten it would be with a little thing that looked like a little wrench called a skate key. And you always had to have the skate key with you because you never knew when it would change and the skate would fall off and you'd have to unscrew it, put it back on your shoe and then screw it again. So where did you keep that skate key? Well, 90% of the kids who skated took the skate key and there was a little hole in it and they put a string in it and then they would tie the string around their head and the skate key would hang here. He wrote two pages on a skate key. I don't remember anything about that novel except that essay on a skate key. It has nothing to do with the story totally irrelevant to the story, except it tells you something about his character. And it became interesting. So 
Little things can be very fascinating in books, even a detective novel where I remember that and I've forgotten everything else. Or latchkey kids used to have the, the string. You know, you could always tell in the 80s, the latchkey kids. Yeah. You know? And, and the latchkey kids would have a string with a key. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you, they, we were told to hide them so that people didn't know that right. you'd be going home alone. Right. Yeah. My observations. Yeah. There and an extra quarter in your pocket in case you had to call your mom. Right. For a payphone. Yeah. Now every kid's got a, an iPhone. Sure, sure. I remember driving around uh, somewhere where I was because I had to call my wife or maybe the person I was living with. I had to call them to tell them I was going to be late. And you're looking for, a, you know, a little payphone. <laughs> Sometime in a movie when that happens, I'll think to myself, why don't they just call them on their iPhone? And I go, oh, it's 1972. There is no iPhone. Yeah. I remember being on the phone trying to call my grandmother, letting her know, quote, everything was okay. It was in a little bit of a rough part of town, and somebody was making a nefarious deal and yelling about it, the payphone next to me. And I'll never forget, he was really angry, and I'm thinking, and my grandmother's like, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's fine. And, but that's L.A., you know, at that time with the payphones. I don't know. It could be anywhere. But you see what just happened? Mm -hmm. I talked about a skate about stuff in, in a medicine chest, how you eat eggs, a skate key, and then you thought about the latch key, and then we got into the calling on the phone, and you remembered how you had to call your grandmother to say, everything's fine, and s someone is yelling over there doing some kind of drug deal or something. It was bad, yeah. There's mm -hmm. a scene from a novel, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and which has nothing to do with the story, but it, it might be the, the event that the reader never forgets. They'll forget your plot. Sure. But they'll not they'll never forget that moment where you're on the phone trying to tell your grandmother you're fine and there's a drug deal going on there and somebody's yelling and screaming and you're not exactly in the best part of town. Right. Because a phone is a phone. Yeah, oh yeah. You found a phone, go make the call. They used to have 3 in a row, you know, you'd go and then right. this person came after I already got on the call and Right. I'll bet you $100 <laughs> That if I give a young person today a, a, a quarter and say, there's a payphone, I want you to make a call on the payphone, okay? So they put the quarter in, then they dial the number. Hi, hey Bill. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling from a payphone. I just, I'm, I'm, we have a bet going here, okay? All right, I just, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Okay, and they hang up. None of them will check the little coin thing to see if the quarter came back. Right. But when we did it, when we were young, you did it. Oh, yeah. Because sometimes the quarter would drop back into that little thing and you'd get your quarter back. Right. It was see? such a treat. But they wouldn't do that because it wouldn't even occur to them. Sure. But those are little details, too. That Details. Every, that... Writing, every writing teacher will tell you details. What's the first writing exercise you give to your students? They read uh, the first three chapters of the method writing book, and they have to write a journal entry in which they write like they talk. How long is the journal entry? Uh, it could be 500 pages, but for the sake of the class, they can only read two pages, because otherwise they could be reading 100 pages and would be there all night. But I don't say you, you can't, you know, I'd say write as much as you want, in your journal, 
for that day or that week, but for the class, limited to about 500 words, which is about two pages, so that we can respond to it, which is 500 is a pretty good normal chunk. But just a journal entry, just write like you talk. I, I, I want to hear your voice. If you're not writing like you talk, we will point out those sentences where you had, uh, he skillfully said, you know, adverbs, adjectives, all that writerly stuff. We'll point it out and we'll, we'll try to get you not to do that. And then in anticipation of the next chapter, we start identifying transformation lines. And then the following week, they have to write a journal entry, writing like you talk, but massaging a transformation line. And sorry, the transformation line again is? I was hiding the birthday cake. Get rid of the birthday cake. What's the story of your life and the truth of who you are? I was hiding. I didn't want people to see me. I was afraid they wouldn't like me. If they saw who I was, they would hate me. I'm not a good person. I'm a bad boy. Well, I was hiding, ends up, I'm a bad boy. Because I remembered being locked in a closet and I'm a bad boy. That's, just, that's the bottom story of my life. I'm hiding because I don't want people to see me. I don't want people to see me because they'll know who I am. If they see who I am inside, they know I'm a bad person. And then suddenly it came to me, I'm a bad boy. Well, that's a long way from I was hiding. I'm a bad boy. And then from I'm a bad boy, I'm stuck, which is where you ended up. Right. So that's, I'm teaching them how to massage your transformation line. Then we, do, uh, then we do the image moment for two weeks because it's hard. And then we do a, something called dreaded association, which is another two weeks. Again, too complicated to go into now, but it was originally called the association exercise. And when I would assign it to people and they would read it, um, they would get notes from their mother as to why they were sick and couldn't come to class. Because <laughs> <laughs> they would dread it so. So then, I, as a joke, I called it the dreaded association exercise. And that's what we call it. And then, of course, they do it, and they bring it to class, and they're, they're just shocked as hell how good it works and what they can do with it and how it can be a very creative thing. And those are the four concepts in the first level. Right like you talk, massage transformation line, image moment, and the dreaded association exercise. How many of your students are actually able to write in a journal and not censor themselves, not try to be too writerly? Eventually, all of them. But in the beginning, is that something that a lot of them struggle with? Many of them don't have a problem with it. They, they, they haven't had enough experience writing that uh, they know how to be writers. The ones that have been writing a lot and who think of themselves as writers or I'm an actor, you know, they might have a little difficulty, uh, or it might just be a sentence or two here and there. And so we pointed out, I talk about the structure of the sentence and why that's written and not spoken. That if you were talking, you would have said it this way, or it would go this way, or that word would be there. So we get into the structure of a sentence and the difference between speech and how we write. For instance, um, here's a sentence that is absolutely... Fine, you'll see it in 
in books all the time. Uh, it begins with a participle phrase. Standing by the window, I could see it was going to rain. Nothing wrong with that sentence. Great sentence. But we don't talk that way. We don't begin sentences with participle phrases. We don't say, uh, yeah, I came home and standing by the window, I could see it was going to rain. That's not how we structure a sentence when we talk. What we say is, I was standing by the window and I could see it was going to rain. Or when I stood by the window, I could see it was going to rain. But never standing by the window, comma, I could see it was going to rain. That's not how we talk. So we get into the structure of sentences, how it's not always a word, you know, because everybody has different vocabularies. So it's not about that. It's about the structure of the sentence, how a sentence is structured. And once you start to hear the, the deep structure of speech as opposed to the deep structure of a literary construct, it doesn't mean it's bad writing. It just means you have to know the difference. Then if you know the difference, you can choose when to do one and when to the other. So maybe at the worst, uh, a few people will have one or two of those sentences somewhere in what they write, and we deconstruct it and we talk about it. So basically, I'm getting them to be aware of, of their writing that is speech-based. Now, it's not always going to be that. Level two goes into those four tones that are not like you talk. So we're writers, and we can do that too. But first, we want to, like acting, we want to have a good foundation so where you write like you talk. Once in a while, I'll get someone who's been writing a long time, and they're really locked into their style, and it's hard for them to shift out of it. to Because they think, they just think it's natural to throw in those adverbs and adjectives and so forth. But when you, there's, it's not good writing sometimes. So sometimes even their writing writing is not good writing. But most people take to it pretty well. Why is it not good writing? When, when someone's writing too writerly, too, too using different terms that we wouldn't use in normal conversation. Uh, if you've got a laptop around, Google Stephen King adverbs. He's got an essay on it. Adverbs. It's what amateurs do. It's bad writing. So don't take my word for it. Stephen King, who's a good writer, by the way. Excessive use of adverbs is the mark of an amateur. Um, uh, Elmore Leonard. He had an article in the New York Times Review of Books, um, which was all about the 10 things that bad writers do. The first one was excessive use of adverbs and often adjectives. I mean, you have to have adjectives sometime, but you got to be careful. Um, it was so well received that his publisher made it a book. Now, how do you make a book out of one page article in the New York Times Review of book, Books, I'll tell you. You have illustrations on every page, you have type that's very big, and the paper is about as thick as a two by four. And then you get a book, and it's sold really well. And number one is excessive use of adverbs and adjectives. So, you know, this is not something that I made up while I was living in a cave. Every, every professional writer will tell you 
that you can, you can spot an amateur when they overuse ad, adverbs and often uh, even the adjectives. So who am I to argue with Stephen King and Elmore Leonard? It's bad writing. Now, there's other things that may not be bad writing, but it's not how you talk. So that's a different thing. I want people to know the difference so that they can control when they're writing what effect they're going to create. He mumbled, he uh, averred, uh, he implied, he, he shrugged. You know, uh, I don't care if you live or die, he shrugged. So instead of saying a word that has to do with uttering, it's, it's a physical action. I mean, writers do that, bad writers do that all the time. And, you know, I feel like sometimes I, I got to go, quit it. Quit it. So keep it simple. Well, that's a different issue. Oh, okay. You can say complicated things, but you say it like you talk. I'm not saying you can't write complicated sentences. Okay. Okay. It's just a question of, is that speech or is that a literary construct that came when people started to write? The difference. One of the problems a lot of people have with Marcel Proust is his fancy language. If you read him fast, you realize he's writing like he talks. There's a great deal of eloquence in there, but if you read it fast, you realize, oh, he's talking. And the elegance that you think you're seeing is often just long sentences. Some sentences are half a page, but he's talking. You had asked me about another book, uh, books I've read. So another one that I read during the pandemic, or it was on the uh, Libby app for the library, was uh, My Salinger Year. So it was about a woman who worked at a, a publisher in, I think, the 90s. And her job was to respond to J.D. Salinger fans. And it's so great. And they made a film and it has um, uh, Margaret Qualley in it. And, uh, right, sounds good. To see it. Yeah, but, but she wanted to take care in responding to these fans because they were so emotional and they were so invested right. in holding Caulfield. And she found that a lot of them didn't want to hear what she had to say. They wanted to just have this image of what that character was and what the book meant right. and she character, wanted to help them. Yeah. Character <laughs> creates plot and voice creates character. Salinger never wrote another book in that voice. If you read Franny and Zoe and Raise High the Roof Beams Carpenters, it's a completely different style and voice. If you read some of his short stories, like Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut or The Laughing Man, it's not Holden Caulfield at all. It's not that style. That, that was Holden's voice. It's unique, and it's what makes his character so unique, the voice. You get the voice, you get the character. You get the character, the plot will take care of itself. Yeah. In fact, they became very angry. She was trying to help them, yeah. and they didn't want help. That's they wanted right. to be angry, and they wanted to be with Holden. They wanted to be yeah. with Holden. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it was a really fascinating book. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing the films. So, yeah. uh, wait, the Salinger years. Yeah, uh, not my, Catcher my, in the Rye. No, my Salinger no. year, and it's based yeah. on this woman in New York City in the '90s. Yeah, and it's really. No, I don't think they're ever going to make a movie of Catcher in the Rye until when his book goes into public domain or something, because he won't allow that. He's dead now, but 
I think he has explicit instructions. It's not to be sold to the movies. Yeah, he had very rigid rules, I believe. It sounds like he was a nice man, the way she described him in the book. I don't know. Yeah. His urban legend might have been different, but yeah. he, he he treated her well, and so she just had very little interaction at the publishing house. Right. But it was fascinating and just, yeah. you know. Those anyway. things are kind of really not important, whether the writer is a nice man or not. You know? <laughs> Writers can be son of a bitches, you know. We may not realize it, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is the world they create. I don't care what Salinger was like. I love Holden. I love Holden. Interesting. And, and so he created something that was real for right. me, and that's that's all you can ask an author to do. A writer should reach the reader. It's not just about making themselves feel good or looking good to their peers. It's about reaching the reader. It's all of that. I mean, you do want to impress your peers. I mean, we're human. Well, we want other writers, you know, our, our peers to appreciate what we've done. Uh, obviously, I want people to like my poetry, but it means a lot to me if another poet who I admire really thinks my poetry is good, okay? Um, and I do want to reach my readers, but at the same time, I want to satisfy myself. If, 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 if what I did, uh, a writer, sculptor, painter, makes me happy and... I met the challenge, then I'll move on. At some point, you can't really go by what people think of your work. You, you have to do it because it's your calling. It's what you have to do. But who wouldn't want someone to like their work? But is there a certain point where an author, an artist, becomes so controversial that it stops being about their work and now it's just the legend of the artist? the mystique around them, the reputation, whether it's true or not. Okay, and if that's true, what, what are we going to do about that? And that's what I'm asking, yeah. What, what I, should, should I, someone do if I, their, their work is transcended to that point? What's, look, the, everything is going to happen under the sun. Uh, you know, there's not, I mean, I, I, I can't, pontificate and say, well, it should be this way or it should be that way or it shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be that way. You know, it's going to happen. And sometimes it's out of the writer's control. Things happen that they didn't expect or they didn't want. And sometimes they want that. They, they act a certain way and there becomes a legend about how they are and they cultivate that legend. Uh, you know, I mean, writers are people and, you know, people are crazy. Not every crazy person writes a novel, but some of us do. <laughs> it doesn't make us sane just because we can write a novel. Who was the artist that did the Lacma Lights? Chris? Yeah. So oh, he, oh, he oh, did that. Burton. He, yeah, Chris Burton. Chris Burton, yeah. right. Burton, right. yeah, Chris I Burton. I love him. I love him. Right, Chris Burton. So I would he... have never expected that to be as iconographic and as popular as it is. He did something that somehow captured the imagination of people and transcended it being, one, a spectacle, and two, a work of art. It's something beyond that. Because on some level, it's like a bunch of lights? What's the big deal with that? And on another level, it's, I mean, it's not art. What is it? Well, it's a place people like to go to. Well, that's like a ride at Coney Island. What's the difference? 
you know, I don't know, but art sometimes uh, connects to people in ways that we don't really anticipate or, or understand. There's just something about art that, I don't know, you just, it, like, like Duchamp's uh, urinal. You know, he puts this urinal in a room in a museum and um, it's done. You, you could copy that and do something, you know, put something else in there that would be so ridiculous. But he did it. It's done. He put a urinal in an armistice. It's very famous. So painters and sculptors, as filmmakers, they do something and sometimes you can't, you can't, you can analyze it all you want, but it, there's an area that's unexplainable. And I love the light thing. That, I mean, it's, I love to see people there. Uh, I remember there was a, uh, what was it? It wasn't a blackout, but it was something. And it was, it was the only thing in the area that was lit. And people were just having so much fun there. So, uh, you know, it's weird. It's just, have you, have you seen the car thing? The cars? I haven't been to LACMA in a little bit. Oh, I don't know if the cars are still there. Oh. Um, did you see the film with the guy with the time, with the clock? It was called The Clock. Mm -hmm. And it exactly went with the time on clocks. And it was a 24-hour film. Didn't see that one. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it was an experience. Uh, I, I, went, I was in Paris a year later, and it was being held in Paris at the time. But it's just a series of shots from movies that have a clock in them, a time. And as you watch it, the time on the clock is exactly what time it is over a 24-hour period. So it begins in the morning and, and it ends at midnight. Um, you know, it begins at, well, it begins at midnight, but then it ends at midnight. Uh, the first five minutes you're bored and you're thinking, I can't, I'm not going to be able to sit here for another five minutes. And before you know it, you're there for two hours, three hours, and it's riveting. It's unbelievable. Who would have thought to do that? It's called a clock. The I clock mean, it's, it's a, in the beginning, you couldn't see it all 24 hours because you could only see it during the hours that the museum was open. So if the museum opened at nine in the morning and it closed at eight at night, uh, at eight at night, uh, they would say, okay, folks, you got to leave. Or you'd get there at eight in the morning, you could see it from eight, but you would never get to see what happened after eight or after midnight, you know. But then the closing, so I'd gone several times and saw two or three hours of it at different times. And then they said they were going to show all 24 hours at the museum the last day. And I was there for the whole 24 hours. Oh, wow. And at the end, there were, I would say, a quarter of the theater were people who'd been there the whole time. And when it was over with, we all stood up and cheered and were hugging each other like, you made it. And it was one of those transcendent experiences. I've never forgotten it. And it's utterly ridiculous. I mean, who would want to watch that? Every, every scene was two seconds, five seconds, maybe 10 seconds. And there was a clock. It could be someone looked at their wristwatch, could be a grandfather clock, clock in a train station, just scenes that had no connection at all. 
How could you watch five hours of that? It became mesmerizing. It was unbelievable. I, I tell you, one of, the, one of the most amazing things I ever saw. What year was this? 2000-something, early, maybe 20 years ago, something like that. Yeah. So it was at LACMA. Oh, okay. But I, I don't know if, when they'll show it again, but if they will, people will go to, you know. It toured all over the world. So, but your question was about, uh, you know, when an artist creates something, you, you, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to catch people's imagination. I don't even know why we all stood up and cheered and, and were hugging each other at the end. Maybe because we had been there for 24 hours and maybe because we were able to endure it. I don't know what it was, but it was a feeling of, of exaltation. It was amazing. I've never experienced that before. Because when, when I saw it normally, you would just walk out at some point. Or if you were there like at 6 o'clock at night, at 8 o'clock the guy would come in and go, okay, folks, we have to close it down. The museum is closing. So there was no like experience. Um, but for that there was. It was amazing. Did you stay up the full 24 hours? Th that was the when it did the last show they specifically said it was going to be 24 hours. Before it was at the museum, you could only see it during the museum hours. Consequently, you were only seeing, like if the museum opened at 9, the first image you saw was 9 o'clock. And as the day wore on, it would be 10, 1, 3, 5. You could stay from 9 to 8, but you'd still miss a lot. And I never did stay more than four hours. So when I went, I would stay three, maybe four hours. And I'd go with friends, and we would get loaded or something and, and watch it or something. But that last night, when it was going to be 24 hours, I made I planned to be there for the whole thing. Um, I think there was one point where I knew I had seen that twice, uh, an hour. I'd seen it twice. And I left and got myself something to eat, and then I came back. My seat got taken, so I had to stand against the wall, but then eventually someone left and I sat down. It was amazing. Read about it. The clock. Check it out. Google it.